morning, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, live from the land of enchantment, New Mexico, Indian country, or should I say Native Americans, because they were certainly here long before we were. We have one hell of a show for you tonight, because we've got the goods And we've got the people to explain it to you, including a very vast faculty of uh, consultants and guests and uh, members of the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team and some kibitzers. Let's see, who's the kibitzer? We'll get through that when we get through. Um, I want to hit a couple of high spots in the news first. For those of you who are um, new to the show, I want to tell you how to get to where you can see these images. We have this section called Radio with Pictures, where instead of showing stupid videos of, you know, people talking like, uh, YouTube is so filled with nonsense, idiocy. Ah, talk about noise. What we try to do is provide imagery that we talk about, but you don't get to see us, thank God. You get to see the imagery and to focus solely on what we're describing in these astonishing history-making pictures. So, What you want to do is go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. That's our homepage. Click on that. That will take you to a very graciously laid out page, courtesy of Kinthea, who is our art director for both Enterprise and the other side of midnight and other things that we ask her to do from time to time in the artistic vein. And you click on tonight's banner, which says Artemis One, visit to a planet made of glass. And then my friend Arthur in his incredible quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And then right under there where it says in big yellow letters to listen to the show, it says in smaller letters in white, fast links to items. And you'll see my name, Roger Braun, Andrew Curry, Jonathan Womack, Robert Morningstar, and I think we're going to have Barbara adding something, but I may be wrong about that. Okay. Barbara is in the next line, which is all the bios. So when I talk about somebody, I'm not going to spend 20 minutes doing their bios because everybody has a bio that really deserves like 20 minutes. So you can go and read the bio if you're new to these people, to the site, to the investigation, to what we're doing tonight. In the meantime, I will give you a couple-line shorthand, which will give the context of why these people are presenting to you tonight something really historic and incredibly important. So without further ado, uh, click on my name, where it says Richard there. Just click on that. That will take you to my section of the Radio with Pictures page. You can see the old RKO emblem there at the top that I freely, freely stole and then modified um, because we actually had a, had a development deal with RKO. Oh, the things that never were, but might be again. Who knows? Life is, is short and history is moving at warp nine. Anyway, item number one, after 26 days in space, in deep space, which can include something like 270 thousand miles give or take beyond the distance of the moon that's total distance 50,000 miles beyond the moon the Orion spacecraft splashed down this uh, afternoon eastern time morning pacific 
a few hundred miles off uh, um, Baja because there is a major cold front sweeping and a huge storm, winter storm, first of the season, sweeping down across the North Pacific. It's made landfall in California. The temperatures here today were almost 60. Tomorrow they're going to be like 30 degrees colder. And they're telling us we're going to have snow. Jingle bells, jingle bells. Anyway, um, item number one, this is the Artemis blog from NASA, which has been a mainstay of this page for months and months and months since uh, I think last August when they were first trying to launch this thing. Well, they did it, they did it, they did it. And um, we will, in the ensuing days, hear from NASA and, of course, with our commentary, all the play-by-play of how amazingly successful this spacecraft was. The launch vehicle, well, that's something else, and we're not going to take a lot of time tonight, but you cannot develop a sustainable program to go back to the moon and put a colony in the South Pole uh, and do all the things that we're going to need to do in the next few years when the mainstream suddenly realizes what you're going to get a first row seat tonight and looking at, which is the moon is studded with incredible ancient artificial ET artifacts all over the damn place, particularly at the South Pole, hiding under an extraordinary planet-wide, I use the term planet loosely for the moon because it is basically a planet-sized object, planet-wide glass dome, uh, which is highly uh, concentrated at the South Pole. In other words, more of it is left there than around the equator, certainly on the side of the moon that we can see, the so-called near side. And that's where NASA plans to put a base, a developing city on the moon to be permanently occupied in the out years, just like uh, the International Space Station has been continuously occupied since, will you believe it, 1998. I remember it well. Anyway, um, but you're not going to do that with a Congress which is, at, on, on the best of days, kind of iffy about space. I mean, they like showing up for, uh, you know, golden shovel moments or, you know, taking credit for some astonishing economic breakthrough in terms of spin-off technologies. But uh, funding a real space program, NASA has not had a real budget, apropos when you account for inflation of what it was spending in the 1960s. When we sent Apollo to the moon first, it hadn't had a real budget for decades. I mean, it's now less than half of 1% of the federal budget. It's less than $19.5 billion per year. Heck, most other government agencies spend twice or three times that much, and some of them, uh, the Pentagon, spends almost a trillion dollars per year of the U.S. taxpayers' dollars. So NASA has been star for money, star for money, star for money. And in that situation, it really is astonishing that we have sent this first unmanned, very expensive Artemis mission, this first of the Artemis program, following in the heels of Apollo after only 50 years, half a century not that we didn't know how to do this stuff. All the conspiracy theorists say, oh, we never went to the moon. This is why it's taken so long to go back. No, it's all about 
money, greenbacks. You know, the old cliche, no bucks, no Buck Rogers. We have starved NASA, and I think it's been part of the deliberate plan. Because you can't have NASA out there doing what it should be doing in a big, high, wide, and handsome way without them tripping over in ways that cannot be concealed any longer all the extraordinary ET stuff that's waiting for us that is going to transform irrevocably and for the better all of terrestrial civilization. You can't do that. So, in the Hoagland geopolitical model, why NASA has been starved for money, we've been kind of eking out one little space station, dinky space station, although it kind of gets perks, you know, but it's really not going and exploring and embracing the solar system like we envisioned back when I was with Cronkite and a consultant to NASA. We've been kind of mucking along because they've held us in the shallow water because in the deep water beyond the moon lie all the things they have not wanted us to know until, a caveat, until maybe now. Because NASA's plan in two or three years, again, star for money, is to send the first men and women back to the moon following Apollo, and then in short order, like a year or two after that, begin establishing this moon base, this first city in the modern era on the moon at the South Pole, and I don't mean right at the pole, but somewhere close by. And that's all going to take a lot of people, a lot of technology, a lot of hardware, a lot of money, and here's the bottom line. This Artemis One mission, with the first test launch of both the booster, the space launch system, the follow-on to the um, Saturn V, uh, which was kind of clued together from hand-me-down parts and engineering from the space shuttle program, per a political influence on the name of Richard Shelby, uh, Senator Richard Shelby from Alabama, who insisted that uh, all of this be done in his state with his taxpayers getting returns from the federal dollar back in his, you know, gravy train, and that it used this technology developed in Alabama at the Marshall Space Flight Center, which, of course, all took place, and that's why it now is uh, over, 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 overpriced. I mean, when you compare the cost of the Artemis system with the SLS, the Space Launch System, the big rocket with the two solid fuel boosters on the side of the orange tanks, that launch the other night on the 16th of, um, of November, that cost $4.1 billion dollars. With a B, billion. Um, hell, the B-2 bomber or the B-21 bomber, whatever, they, they only cost like half a bill for a reusable spacecraft or, or you know, they're almost spacecraft, uh, bombers, aircraft. Uh, you don't ditch them in the Pacific Ocean after one flight. This is what we did, the Artemis launch system. They ditched it in the Atlantic Ocean. can never be used again. Now, Contrast that with a guy named Elon Musk, who is developing a, an extraordinary separate system called the Starship Heavy Launch System in Texas, with launches also to take place on uh, 
uh, Launchpad 39A at some point, uh, thereby hangs the tail. He can send in the Starship because of the technology he has developed and his engineers and his incredibly innovative team um, for the price of $10 million to the moon, not $4 billion. Eight people to do what Artemis One did in the last few days. $10 million versus $4 billion. So obviously, $4 billion is not sustainable. So obviously, the space launch system will use it maybe two or three more times. It will quietly be retired. Um, Musk, who has the contract through SpaceX, to develop the lunar lander part of the Artemis program, quietly is going to take over everything, except maybe for the spacecraft itself. Uh, it turns out you can actually launch the Artemis uh, Orion spacecraft and its uh, European service module on a Falcon Heavy for about 10 mil. And it can get to the moon, including its upper stage, for about 10 mil compared to 4 billion. Anyway, sorry to bore you with all these numbers, but if we're really looking at a sustainable program to go back to the moon, to land, to begin building a moon city at the South Pole where there are ample resources, we now know from unmanned missions over previous years, things like water, oxygen, nitrogen, carbohydrates, carbons, metals, everything to build an infrastructure, industrial level infrastructure from the lunar resources themselves. That's how it's going to have to be done. So just watch, you know, you've heard it here first probably. Uh, there will be a very elegant and smooth transition between the big NASA system that is so overpriced because of Shelby that there's no way it's part of a sustainable program. And what Musk has been quietly doing with NASA help, with NASA funding, but he is sure made the dollars go an incredible long way. And one of the ways that he is going to keep the cost down is something that NASA has been talking about for decades and never got around to actually implementing, which is you launch gas stations into orbit. And then you launch rockets into orbit. And after they expend their fuel going from Earth's surface to Earth orbit, they re fuel in orbit. You top off the tanks. And then, as Robert Heinlein said, once you're in Earth orbit, you're halfway to anywhere. All you need is the gas. So Musk has been designing his system to refuel starships, literally in low Earth orbit, and then he's going to send some to the moon and some to Mars and some. In other words, this is the way you develop a chemical rocket-based infrastructure that ultimately can, in the words of my dear departed friend Kraft Ericke, inherit the solar system. And I will add again, as you will see tonight. Okay, I spent a lot of time on number one. Number two, last night in the pre-dawn hours, as I said on last night's show, SpaceX successfully launched the Japanese lander, <clears throat> which has a um, NASA CubeSat which is going to look for water at the uh, South Pole with more resolution. It's got a UAE rover, and it's the first commercial mission, unmanned mission, that in uh, four months, April, I think right around my birthday, they're going to land 
God willing, and the creek don't rise, as my grandmother would have said. She was a big Tennessee Ernie Ford fan. Anyway, they're going to land on the moon, and I believe they're aiming for the South Polar region, which leads me to items three and four. And this is where things are going to get really interesting tonight as we get into our discussion after we lay out some data. And I want everybody in the audience to pay specific attention to items three and four. As I said in my tease for tonight's show, that we have a new secret weapon to make sure that everything we have found, in fact, is going to be made public and in a relatively close horizon time frame. Are we waiting for NASA? I mean, NASA, because again, they're being starved for money, is not going to be able to put together the resources for Artemis II until two years from tonight. Come on. Is that any way to run a railroad, let alone a space program? In the meantime, a guy named Musk, who's developing the super heavy booster in Texas and the uh, Starship to go with it, he is waiting for some, I think, FAA clearances, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to have his first low orbit uh, test flight in low Earth orbit of the Starship booster combination. And let's say that takes a couple. We know that Musk crew moves at an incredibly faster rate than the NASA crew. Well, when your launch only costs you ten million instead of you know four billion, yes, you can move faster. So he's doing all these very cool technological things, and he is saying now that within a year from tonight, there could be eight astronauts, civilians, artists flying in the starship around the moon in what's called the Dear Moon Flight. And everything you wanted to know about it is in items three and four, including the fact that item number four, the Daily Mail, has done a very interesting profile on this uh, ecologist and rather uh, eco-freak fanatic, as they uh, uh, call her, uh, anti-fracker and fossil fuel critic. Mean, everything negative they could say about this person who is a professional photographer uh, from Britain who won one of the eight seats. I mean, what do you, what did you have to do to win a seat on the first mission around the moon with a private unmanned uh, or, or human-capable spacecraft? You basically had to send them an email and say, I want to go. Then they looked at you and they did a background and they did a I'm, I'm not quite sure how they selected the eight people because I haven't had time to really do much reading of those uh, two links myself. But there are all those people listed, and there's deep background on all of them. And toward the end of the show, I will tell you, dear Other Side of Midnight audience, how you can help, beginning tonight, to play a pivotal part in opening up the solar system for us and everybody else. So stay tuned for that, okay? Item number five. Uh, this is the Artemis overall flight plan graphic. We'll refer to it a couple of times during the evening. That's just kind of for background. Item number six, this is a, a news story that comes out of uh, the CBC. Isn't it interesting that within a couple of hours, the end of the Orion mission marked certainly on the same day and within a couple hours 
50 years exactly since the landing back on Earth of the crew of Apollo 17, which was the last NASA mission to the moon, for which I was present at the launch on a ship offshore anchored with this incredible first and last night launch of the uh, Apollo program, the Saturn V. There was actually video of that that was taken by our documentary film crew, which uh, uh, I did not have time to post it, and Porky's would have killed me if I had, so we will do that for another time. But it's kind of interesting to watch what this thing looked like from offshore um, at night. Uh, but literally 50 years ago tonight, to the night, this is the half-century anniversary of the end of the Apollo era and the beginning of the Artemis generation. And if you think NASA was not totally aware of that and made that happen despite all those delays, then you and I don't occupy the same radio space tonight. Anyway, um, items from seven on involve uh, uh, the, the, the details of the Orion mission and some of the really uh, fascinating and extraordinary uh, data that we have now kind of gone through. And so rather than take up the time at the beginning of the show here, let me in the first uh, couple of 10 minutes um, add my guest tonight to the list. Let me see. I have to click on something. What do I click on? Here we are. Okay. Not any particular order. Ron Gerbron is joining us. He is our resident generalist. Again, all these people's bios are available if you click on Fast Links to Bios. Andrew Curry is with us. Andrew is a professional artist. He has worked for major film companies, television documentaries. He's done storyboards for Super Bowl ads, and uh, he also has a master's in art therapy. And so we have used his expertise to try to psychoanalyze the extraordinary lunar paintings from Alan Bean, who was the uh, lunar module pilot on Apollo 12 and who kept giving us what's really on the moon for decades when nobody would listen directly, but they do see it in his paintings if they know what to look for. Speaking of art, Kinthea is with us. We haven't had Kinthea with us for a long time. She is the art director of the Enterprise Mission and The Other Side of Midnight, and she has her own show called The Other Side of the News, which she has helmed now for well over a year, which uh, takes positions that um, I don't, but that's what makes horse races, as my grandmother also would have said. So uh, I'm a firm believer in the First Amendment. Oh, boy, do I believe in the First Amendment. Anyway, um, then we've got Keith uh, Morgan with us, who is, as you know, worked for Ted Koppel and is now uh, giving his extraordinary expertise and patience to uh, the both shows, The Other Side of Midnight and The Other Side of the News. And um, he will obviously have some thoughts on what he sees tonight. Uh, John Womack is with us. John is a uh, graphic expert, graphic designer. He has had personal experience with, um, uh, shall we say, out-of-dimension, uh, out-of-body experiences, has ranged beyond the Earth, and uh, has seen some things that uh, uh, actually have been kind of correlated and corroborated by some other remote viewers. And I think one of the things he's going to talk about tonight is how that expertise fits into the bigger picture. Robert Morningstar is back with us. Now, Robert is a civilian 
intelligence analyst. And if that sounds a bit kind of um, uh, diametrically opposed, it's not. Uh, he's also many other things. He knows photo interpretation, geometric analysis. He um, is a private pilot. He's an expert in Chinese languages, history, and martial arts. Um, what am I forgetting? Anyway, he's a he's another basically a generalist um, and has been a friend and colleague of mine for far too many years. When I used to live across the river, he would come and visit me from his palatial estate there on the shores of the Hudson uh, River. <clears throat> Just kidding, Robert. Just kidding. Okay. And last but not least is Barbara Honiger. Now, Barbara is interesting because she is the only one of us assembled tonight that has actual real-world political experience in Washington. And that's why I asked her to be on tonight, even though at the moment she is holding a dinner party. And I guess all her guests are kind of, uh, um, you know, listening in the background. So what I like to do, given that all of what we're going to talk about tonight depends on open public disclosure, I want her to give us a kind of a political um, uh, update on where we stand with what I think is probably the most important thing that will happen in the realm of making everything you're going to hear and see tonight openly public, on the public record, acknowledged by the mainstream, and that is the president signing the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act imminently within days, if not a week or two. So without further ado, Barbara Honiger, please come on down. Hi, Richard. Hi there. You can hear me. We can hear you fine. <clears throat> yeah. Well, this is very exciting because um, you didn't mention it, but we have on previous shows, and that's why you wanted me to come on again tonight to to repeat because it's so important. Um, that the authorization for the use of military force, the AAUMF, um, has been uh, passed by both houses of Congress, and it's now gone to President Biden to sign, and he will, of course, sign it. Um, there are a couple of provisions in it that he doesn't like, but that's okay because it's a veto-proof majority in both houses, so he will sign it. And once he signs it... Um, as uh, your listeners who've heard the previous shows know, uh, that there is a section in it. When when I was on with you and Steve Bath at a couple of shows um, we've had on this, um, that there is an extremely important section. You can probably tell me the number. I can't remember it. But there's an ex incredibly important uh, section of the bill that's about to be signed by Biden into law um, that um, – that requires uh, that that opens up and requires um, uh, a very a very serious advance in the UAP, the unidentified aerial phenomenon investigation and public reporting. So that's number one. But probably just as important as that, um, almost simultaneously with that being passed in the House, as I recall, House or Senate, which was a couple of weeks ago um, when we were on the previous show with um, Steve Bassett, um, that was when Biden very kind of, kind of quietly uh, signed an executive order, uh, which uh, in essence, in gist, states 
that the Department of Justice and the Biden administration, the government, executive branch, will no longer be demanding, mandating uh, journalists, any, and they, they refer to it as members of the, quote, media, unquote, will no longer uh, force or try to force members of the media to turn over their notes or records or any documents relating to their discussions with um, secret sources, including if the information they receive is classified. So this is an incredible event because let's put two and two together. Let's connect the dots. Once the AUMS goes uh, into effect. I'll, I'll tell you what, we're at the bottom of the hour. So why don't we hold it there? Because we don't want to, this is an important punchline. We don't want to shortchange it. Okay? okay. My guest this morning, my first guest is Barbara Honiger. Resident of the Reagan White House, well-versed in policy in Washington, explaining why everything you're going to see tonight and what you've seen in many past shows can come out of NASA fully legal and covered with an impenetrable legal shield that the folks inside showing us the real imagery, the real data, the folks in the Air Force, in the other military parts of the establishment who had interesting interactions with UFOs or UFO technology or any of the things that go bump in the night, they can go public with zero legal repercussions. But what will incentivize them is they also, if they talk to the media, they can make a million dollars in their spare time. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Welcome to the land of free enterprise. midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. What is the real story? And we are back. <laughs> Gosh, I keep hitting the wrong pots here. There we are. Sorry. So, Barbara, this is an incredible backdrop to an incredible mission because 
as we're going to prove throughout the night, they have been lying and lying and lying about even the photographs from Artemis. They've been, you know, doing weird things. They've been compressing them, draining them the color, giving us lousy resolution. I mean, there's no way that these images are 4K resolution from several of 16 cameras that this spacecraft carried. But all that doesn't matter because in a few days, when the president signs this 2023 NDAA, legally, if there are folks inside that want to tell the American people and the world the truth, there will be no legal impediment to them sharing any data on extraterrestrial ruins that exist on the moon that they wish to. And believe me, there's a lot of ruins to share. So please continue. Right. Well, the as I understand it from the show with Steve Bassett, and he he read the critical sections of the of the uh, bill that's about to become law. Um, technically, it only applies to it explicitly applies. Let's put it that way to any information that has been um, required by someone's supervisor not to be released to the public, that, that all of those non-disclosure orders are vacated. Because, sorry, um, Barbara, someone is clicking. Would, would someone please mute their mic? I'm hearing someone, you know, cracking peanuts or walnuts or something. I didn't hear that. Okay. Um, so so the, um, the bill that's about to become law explicitly refers to any inside the government information that would include DOD and presumably also NASA that has anything to do directly or I would probably argue indirectly with the unidentified aerial phenomenon. Well, remember, the law also covers all the contractors. And Correct. for decades, we've all looked to Lockheed Martin as the place in private industry where the bodies are buried and which you can't get information out of through FOIA because technically up until this law is signed, contractors are immune to you know requests for Freedom of Information Act. No longer anybody who wishes to spill the beans in any of these subcontractor companies, these vast corporations that know everything, including stunning things about free energy technologies derived from ET spacecraft and hyperdimensional transit systems and secret space for all of this can come out because they will all have legal cover once the president signs this bill in days. Yeah, I, I want to put a caveat on that, though. It's kind of a big one. The, the way I understand the language that Steve Bassett read, uh, and you can double check this, is that what this bill, when it becomes law, would open up is for anyone on the inside of the Pentagon, presumably NASA, uh, contractors throughout the government, uh, government contractors, DOD contractors, NASA contractors, etc. It, it enables them to freely, without any retaliation, report to this special office in the Pentagon. That, that's, that's not the same thing as going public. Now, that's why I added the important addition of President Biden's new executive order, the new policy that says anybody, anybody, and anybody means government, inside the government, outside the government, anybody who gives leaks, et cetera, 
even classified information to someone in the media, the American media, that they will not go after the media for their notes and records. However, if it's classified information and the government finds out about it, they can still put you in jail for that. So, so it's not completely open door, but you put those two together and the door is cracked really big. It's a huge opening. It's like, you know, give them an yeah. inch, they'll take a mile. Because remember, yeah. we still live in a free enterprise society where if someone wants to make a lot of money and become historical figures, you know, remember Edward Snowden. Edward Snowden did huge services to the American people by showing them the depths of the so-called deep state and citizen, you know, monitoring and, you know, mobile phone data and, you know, all that stuff. And then he had to flee to another country. Well, Snowden now would not have to flee if he was to, in these areas, reveal to congressional committees, to supervisors, to people up the chain, people in the White House. In other words, this is such a crack in the door, the door basically after this bill is signed will be non-existent because I guarantee you, if it doesn't come out the front door, it will, with enterprising reporters, pun intended, will come out the back. Right. And what's fascinating to me is that there's a, a major movement now because of um, because of Biden's new executive order and new policy um, that uh, there's there's a movement um, to uh, to have Biden um, uh, basically withdraw the case against uh, for extradition of Assange, because after all, um, you know, all Assange did was give the information to the media uh, and let the media determine what to put out. How interesting. So um, we, this, this may have something to do with Assange. And I think you're correct that if, um, that if uh, Snowden hadn't yet uh, done his leaks and he were still in the United States, that, that this would um, be considerable uh, a motivation for him to go to the media even more than he did originally. Any way you slice it, and of course Steve likes to slice it very, very fine. That's why we love him. Um, this is going to be an extraordinary new era in what's going on, and people will be able to support their claims with actual evidence. In this case, what's on the moon with real stunning imagery that will not be deniable. And if all that fails, so let's, let's assume that everything that Barbara and I just talked about uh, does not work. You've got Musk and eight civilians who are not covered by any non-disclosure agreement anywhere written any time going into orbit around the moon and most of them are artists visual artists there's professional photographers like this gal from uh, from England and if they don't see these damn ruins then maybe somebody else should be sent but I guarantee you they're going to see them and before the end of the show I'm going to lay out a potential set of scenarios which you, our beloved audience, can help us put this across the finish line. Your being in the arena, your playing at your A game tonight is going to be critically important on the next phase of what's to come. Okay, Barbara, I want to thank you. I need to make one other comment here to kind of close the circle, if I could. Go for it. Go ahead. Hello? I am. Can you hear us? Oh. Yeah, I can hear you. Shall I go ahead? Yeah, by all means. 
Oh, okay. I just couldn't hear you. Um, all right. So I want to be clear. First, I want to be clear about something. And second, I want to add the final piece of this puzzle to close the circle. I want to be clear that when this new bill becomes law, that anybody who's in the system who knows anything about anything related to UAPs, UFOs, ETs, ball lightning, you know, <laughs> orbs, whatever, um, that they that they are that they are free now without retaliation to report only, as I understand it, to this new office in the Pentagon. Now that office in the Pentagon can decide not to tell the public. However, anybody who from the inside, if you're listening to this program, if you if now, as soon as it becomes law, go to that office and report it and immediately go to the mainstream media. Because you but but protect yourself when you go to the mainstream media because they're gonna pay attention when you tell them, I just reported this to this special office in the Pentagon that has been enabled by the new uh, the new AUMF. Exactly. And the media is gonna pay attention. Now here's the final piece of the puzzle. All of that information is supposed to go into the committees in the Congress. Now, those committees in the Congress have classified sessions and they have public sessions about this, uh, the reports from the special office in the Pentagon, okay? Now, they're going to get classified information that they don't think should be made public and that they're going to be told by that special office in the Pentagon that's getting all this new information from people who now have this freedom to do it. They're not going to be revealing it all to the public. However, the members of that committee, we need to put it out on our website, on your website, the members of that committee, because a single member of that committee who wants the information to be made public and is willing to risk their seat on the committee, if it's important enough, under the Supreme Court decision called U.S. versus Gravel, Gravel being in former uh, my friend and former neighbor, the late Senator Mike Gravel of Alaska, who were, who lived right here on the Monterey Peninsula for years before he passed away a few years ago. This, this court case, Supreme Court case, U.S. versus Gravel, it's very clear that any sitting member of Congress, and I'm talking about the members of the committee who will be getting the classified information uh, from this new office in the Pentagon on UAPs, et cetera, any member of Congress who's willing to risk their seat on the committee and maybe even their seat in Congress in the next election, if it's important enough, they can go on the floor of the House or the Senate and U.S. versus Gravel Supreme Court decision says nothing can be done to retaliate against them legally by any other branch of the government, including the executive branch and DOJ. Hmm. Including maybe Senator, you know, uh, Congressman Kevin McCarthy who, of course, is already threatening to take certain people off committees for just parting their hair on the wrong side. <clears throat> well, yeah, and he probably would. And that's what I'm saying. If, it's in, if it's the information is important enough, I'll, uh, you know, may not be your favorite person, but, um, you know, Liz Cheney. Uh, if it's important enough and you're willing, a member of Congress, see some classified information from this special new office in the Pentagon and feels they're willing to put their job in Congress on the line, certainly their committee assignment on the line, they can go public on the floor of the House or the Senate or in any House or Senate committee meeting and spill the beans that's in their memory from being inside those classified uh, 
hearings in Congress. They can go public and spill the beans and nothing can be done to them. Wow. Okay, uh, Barbara took time out from her dinner party. You may return to your dinner party. I understand you're having enchiladas. I'll be right over after the show. Okay, good. We're looking forward to that. <laughs> so we return you to your regularly scheduled dinner party. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, um, Tava, before we go to our next guest, let me give you a little background. Again, you want to go to the other side of midnight.com, click on tonight's banner. That takes you to the uh, show pair, the guest page for tonight's show. Uh, under that, you'll see where it says uh, uh, fast links to items. Click on my name. That takes you to my section of the page. And uh, you're going to want to look down at number eight. We're going to skip seven for a minute here because we're going to come back to seven when I bring John Womack on. Uh, number eight. Um, this is a plain, ordinary garden variety eclipse of a total uh, eclipse by the moon of the sun. And as you're going to see later on in the morning, you know, we've known that there was something bizarre going on with the moon. Forget the sun. Forget, you know, look at the moon. For 171 years. I will document that shortly. And what it is, is that because the Earth's orbit around the sun is not a perfect circle, and the moon's orbit around the Earth is not a perfect circle, when you have eclipses, which roughly happen in, in two seasons uh, per year, around spring and around fall when the when the sun, moon, and earth all line up in terms of their orbital planes. Um, you get this period of totality, which can vary from, you know, a few seconds to almost seven minutes when the moon is closest and the earth is closest to the sun and that kind of thing in, in its orbit. And then it can actually uh, get far enough away so that you don't get a total eclipse you basically have the moon in the middle of a bright ring of fire, the photosphere of the sun. That's called an annular eclipse, annular ring, annulus, annular year, orbit, circle going around. It's all related in Latin. Anyway, but if you look at that picture, if you, if you click on it and make it bigger, it's obvious now of everything we know that that is an incredible backlit picture of the dome around the entire moon. And every time I say that, I, I, I can hear people fainting. He, he, did he just say there was a dome covering the whole damn moon, all 2,000-mile diameter of it, all 15 million square miles surface area? Yes, 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 because, back to Arthur Clarke, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, meaning that if you introduce an F-35 to a Neanderthal, he would think it was something out of out of heaven, out of hell, out of someplace, not of this earth, because it would be so extraordinary to see it performing and totally beyond his ability to figure out how it worked. What did you expect we would find when we first encountered ETs? Something that we could easily understand? Of course not. By definition, they, whoever they are, and there's more than one they, are going to be so many light years ahead of us in terms of capabilities, in terms of consciousness, in terms of understanding the real universe, that even if you don't invoke all of the theories that we have posed over the years about us being kind of you know, kept in the dark and kept down on the farm, and as Charles Ford said, we are property, 
even if you discount all of that, if you have different evolutionary rates going on with different species, even in the same galaxy, the guys that are going to find you are the guys that are more advanced than you are, because if you could travel to them, by definition, you would be more advanced than they are. So whoever comes here is going to be, by definition, more advanced, certainly technically, and maybe spiritually, psychologically, in terms of consciousness, in terms of being plugged into higher dimensions, whatever, as will be their ruins. So we've encountered ruins right next door on the moon. And for 50 years, tonight, literally 50 years, half a century, NASA has done everything in its power to keep the rest of the planet, the rest of humanity, from knowing what it found on the moon. That's the background context for tonight's discussion. Okay, so now we go to number nine. This also happens to be the weekend when, for the next few days, Mars is closer to us, the planet beyond the moon. Uh, as you can see in that brilliant uh, compilation by a guy named McCarthy, Andrew McCarthy, who was an amateur astronomer, who was anticipating photographing the moon occulting Mars, meaning moons orbiting the Earth, Mars is much farther away, tens of millions of miles. The moon in its orbit moves from right to left, and it crosses Mars. And for a period of like about an hour, it's behind Mars. And then it comes out the other side. And it turned out that this uh, particular occultation was when the, the, the phase of the moon was almost a full moon. So the Mars went behind the bright side and came out uh, on a bright side but there's a little bit of shadow uh, remaining on the on the right side, so <clears throat> that it was you could actually see Mars rising above a glimmer of a dark horizon on the moon. All very spectacular, and we're going to show some images shortly here. The reason that I'm doing this this way is because tonight, this weekend, is again when Mars is closest, and it's going to be for another 15 or so years. And one of our panelists, Ron Gerbrand who really has a thing about Mars. Um, I said to him, what we're going to do is we're going to segue from what's on the moon to the most interesting stuff you're going to see on Mars that's also going to come out as part of this NDAA disclosure process where people like a JPL, like Andrew Curry and I have been discussing for months and months and months, years, why you can have all these brilliant genius people at JPL looking at all kinds of ruins on the Perseverance images, and nobody says anything. Well, after the president signs this law, they will be able in full conscience to say something and back it up with images and real analysis. I mean, have I gotten the point across that we're on the edge uh, I'm thinking of a famous book here, The Edge of Forever, that we're on the edge of something so astonishing historically where all the pent-up secrets are about to have a platform where they can come out of the closet, mixing our metaphors madly, and be widely available for the general audience, the general public, the general population of the world. All right, moving on, and we need to move rather with alacrity here. Uh, items 10 and 11 are a wide angle from Andrew uh, McCarthy, the amateur astronomer who did the beautiful composite in number nine, uh, showing Mars as it exited from behind the moon. 
we rotated the image so the moon is like down because we find out that from the experiments at Harvard that people see geometry better if it's up, down, left, right, the way normal reality presents itself to us. Now you're going to see that around the moon there are a series of isobars of luminosity. That is backscatter from the dome. Let me repeat that, that you're literally looking at the moon with the sun right behind you. So the light is coming over your shoulder. It's bouncing off the moon, coming directly back like one of those, you know, zero reflection signs. And then it's continuing on to Mars, tens of millions of miles further away and coming back so that Mars basically is a full Mars. It's a not a gibbous Mars, not a crescent Mars. We can never see. It's a it's a full Mars. Okay. Now, item number 11 is a close-up uh, at the top, of which I put an inset in. If you click on that and look at the bottom of, of the Mars image, you see that little white trace of a line parallel to the horizon of the moon and parallel to that dark shadow from the ridge in front of the, uh, that shadow? That's the densest refracting part of the remaining lunar dome on the Earth side of the moon. It shows up even as planets are occulted behind the limb of the moon, depending upon the state of libration of the moon. And you can see it right there, again, if you know what you're looking for. Item number 12. Now, one of the really cool things about the uh, Artemis mission was that they arranged, and again, it wasn't wasn't the happenstance, wasn't arbitrary, wasn't because it had nothing better to do. They arranged the orbit of the spacecraft, and that's why if you go back to my item number, uh, let me get it up here, item number five, this will kind of give you the background geometric layout of how these orbits work. They're not, by the way, to scale. That's a schematic, it's not to scale. But when they put that spacecraft into its far orbit, what they call the distant retrograde orbit, on the far side of the moon, uh, meaning that uh, depending upon the angle of the sun, it was uh, it was like a like a gibbous moon with the light coming in from the left. By the way, all the NASA images are upside down for some reason. I think it's just basically to confuse us. So what I had John do was turn everything upside down, so it's now right side up because the moon was moving. Uh, to the right, the spacecraft Orion moving to the left, it was causing the moon to move in front of the sun, which was a uh, you know, quarter million miles away from the moon and about 50,000 miles uh, further away from the uh, Orion spacecraft. Anyway, so 12 and 13 and 14 show comparisons of this um, space.com video, which is up, up listed up there in raw form in item number seven. You might want to look at that first and then look at these details. And then you're going to want to look at John's version because what's really interesting is that as, uh, as, you, as you restore all the data in the video that NASA took out before they gave it to space.com, you find that the far side of the moon, the side covered in glass, most of which is still intact, is incredibly colorful. And if you continue on down, you'll see in uh, examples 13 and 14, that particularly in 13, when the Earth is coming out from behind the moon, right at the edge of the moon, there's this brilliant green flash, 
which is caused by what we call prismatic refraction in the in the glass dome, which is covering like a shell, like wrapping the moon in saran wrap. It's about that thick. Uh, but at the right angles, you get these incredible color and luminosity changes. What I had John do was to basically take and work with the space.com video and put the color back in and wait till you see when he comes on what he's going to see. Now, who has shown it to us first? By the way, if you look at the details in 13, remember I keep saying that NASA keeps hiding stuff. I want you to look at the details on the moon in number 13. Then look at the details on the Earth. They've not been messing with the Earth in this frame. They have been messing with the moon because there's almost no detail. Why don't they want us to see the detail on the far side of the moon? Why would they blur it out? Obviously, it was selectively, deliberately blurred. The good thing is they didn't know not to mess with the color. So the colors are accurate. It's the detail. They said, oh, we've got to bury the detail because, of course, from all photography, you know, the devil is in the details, right? Number 14, you see how capricious they are. Number 14, the GoPro cameras, that's pretty much what you see. Um, and it's only taken, you know, a few minutes after the one in 13 with the moon farther to the left. For some reason, they left that version alone. And you can see limited detail, but it's much more than in 13 on the moon. Now, number 15, this is what you get when you compare different space programs, because 15 is from the Chinese, taken by one of their unmanned satellites called, uh, um, I believe, Mocking Bridge or something, uh, which was a relay satellite put up so they could communicate with their Chang uh, 5 spacecraft landing on the far side of the moon. If you zoom in on that, you're going to find something really interesting, which, of course, we don't have time in this segment to talk about, but we will when we return. So what I will say is we're laying all this, as the lawyers say, as foundation, because when we return, we're going to bring on more panelists, and they will share with you what they have found in the NASA data from Artemis from the moon. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight for this Sunday night, December 11th. The return of Artemis, the 50th anniversary, literally to the day or the night of when Apollo 17 returned from the last human manned Apollo mission to the moon. If you have an enlarged... Well, well, we don't want to do that. No, 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 we don't want to do that at all. Okay, so back to our program. If you go back to number 15, click on number 15, because this is really important, and you're going to scan to the left and right. Uh, look at the Earth as it's rising behind this far side vision from the uh, unmanned uh, Chinese spacecraft that was uh, put into orbit to actual, actually act as a, uh, a communications relay for their unmanned Chang 5 mission. Uh, Chang, yeah, uh, Chang, Chang 4, I'm sorry, Chang 4. Notice that the Earth has a brilliant thing covering it, uh, encroaching onto the lunar surface. That's a magnified light coming from the clouds of the Earth because this acts like a lens. And then notice there's this dark band above the bright line. That's some kind of upper level of the dome, which is absorbing light. It's not acting like a lens. It's acting like some kind of an absorption layer, either as a filter to screen the surface from ultraviolet or maybe as both a filter and as a way to basically draw power from the sun. Can you imagine the amount of solar energy that you could store, soak up and store, if you have an energy collector literally the size of the diameter of the moon facing the sun? You know, with 15 million square miles of, uh, of area, if it was properly ducted into uh, batteries or energy reserves or some kind of storage mechanism, um, I mean, this is just absolutely astonishing. So what you want to do now is you want to look at, at um, uh, 16, because what I've done on 16 is to basically show um, a vision of a rotated. Actually, we're missing one slide here. I wonder how that happened. Probably on my mistake. <clears throat> anyway, we're missing one slide in between, which shows you the moon disappearing on the right-hand side. I'm sorry, the Earth disappearing on the right-hand side of the moon just before it goes into eclipse. And this is what you're seeing in 16, rotated 90 degrees. So again, like in the uh, occultation images, the moon is below and space is above. And these are two parts of the Earth, which are just the final slivers sticking out behind the curve of the moon before it goes into totality. And what you find, which is really astonishing, and um, uh, I may try to get that up on another uh, version of this imagery. What you find is that the... Earth, as it goes behind the moon, the last visible remnants of the Earth take on incredible color. 
just like in the left-hand panel of this two-frame composite, which is a sunset photograph from the International Space Station orbiting the Earth. The Earth atmosphere acts like a gaseous lens. Well, gaseous lens, real lens, glass lens, refraction is refraction is refraction, and prismatic dispersion of light according to wavelength or frequency is the same. So the same phenomenon is going on around the moon, but of course we know the moon cannot have an atmosphere, so that only leaves one, one final explanation. It's got to be the refractive properties of the dome. So then you go to 17, and this is a comparison of an Apollo 17 image uh, on the left with a view of the Golden Gate and sunset on the right, in the sunset atmosphere, when the sun is behind you and it's uh, going down, you get this incredible prismatic display on the atmosphere in front of you, 180 degrees opposite the sunset, of the refraction that you see in the left-hand side of number 16, except instead of looking directly at the sunset, you're looking at the backscattering from the atmosphere, basically acting like a movie screen. The same thing can be seen when it should not be visible on the moon. On the left-hand panel, you see the astronaut's shadow. He's taking the picture. I think that's Gene Cernan uh, taking the picture. In the middle distance, you see the lunar module. Then you see south massive to the left, and you see more mountains of far distance to the right. And then between them, extending to the top of the frame, is this same multicolored band of colors from sunset on the moon. In other words, the opposite, you're looking opposite the view in the right panel of 16. Because instead of standing on the moon um, looking toward the, the setting Earth, you'd be standing on the moon looking away from it, seeing this color. Of course, it'd be very faint because the sunlight is 10,000 times brighter than the Earth-lit uh, moon, uh, Earth-lit uh, uh, Earth, I'm sorry, the Earth light from the Earth shining on the moon. So all of this then produces the effect that you see in item 18. On the left, you can see this view from the Orion spacecraft of the moon as the Earth is just about to disappear behind the right-hand edge. And in the upper sliver, particularly, if you click on it, it gets much bigger. It's pink. Where the heck did the pink come from? The Earth is blue and white. There's no color, certainly not in the phase aspect. And then, of course, what I've done here is to create a composite so you can see that actually, if you're looking at a glass structure, that's what the object is on the right. This is the Crystal Palace in Madrid. It's kind of like uh, one of those old uh, um, uh, Victorian uh, palaces they used to build to hold expositions all made of iron girders and glass. Well, this is in Madrid, it exists now. These are photographs taken inside, that's the scale. See the human being there. You get incredible prismatic refractions. You know, the edges of the glass panes refract light differently. You get all kinds of red, green, and blues, but you also get pastels, which now is the upper inset panel on the left in that frame next to the moon next to the Earth disappearing behind the moon. And that's what we're seeing on the moon, because if you have a planet covered with glass, you're gonna get all different angles and refractions and overlapping colors, and that shows you literally what in a glass structure, 
all that overlapping multiple color bouncing around produces in the way of pastels, and they look identical to what you're seeing on the far side of the moon. Which brings me to my final slide, which is number 19. It turns out that in 1860, 1851, on July 28th, a um, uh, astronomer named Johann Julius Friedrich Berkowski took the first daguerreotype, very primitive form of photography, image of a total solar eclipse. If you look carefully, you can see in black and white on this 171-year-old image every aspect of the dome around the moon that for almost 200 years now, every astronomer, both professional and and uh, amateur has totally ignored because it literally was not within their purview to imagine something this extraordinary could in fact exist around or over every aspect of the moon that we can see. So without further ado, Jonathan Womack, who is an expert in computer graphics on many other things, has taken the imagery from space.com, who took it from NASA, from the raw footage from Orion, has put it together to show you in three-dimensional color, in motion picture color, what it is that NASA, before the signing of the NDAA, is being forced by some powers to deny to the American taxpayer, to the American people. John, take it away. Hi, Richard. This is a good time to mention that um, you did a wonderful six-hour documentary in 2019. And on your homepage, the other side of midnight.com, there's a banner that uh, says, you know, the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing. And you've shown a few bits of it tonight, but that's six hours of very interesting research and data that you've collected over the years and put together. I, I love that presentation. So if uh, tonight's show interests you, I highly recommend you go and watch that documentary. It's on uh, a number of platforms. I recommend going to paraflix.com. You can sign up for the free trial and watch it. And, um, but that's a wonderful show. So you want me to go through my slides real quick, Richard? Yep. Okay, slide number one. Ingo Swan is famous for doing a lot of uh, moon remote viewing for the CIA, and uh, he was a friend of, um, I work with uh, Russell Targ, who was the co-founder of Stanford Research Institute in the 70s, 1972, and so in 1973, they did an experiment, uh, Ingo and Russell and Hal Putoff, who's Russell's uh, partner. And uh, they had a gentleman there from NASA, I can't think of his name, but they asked Ingo, and this was on a Saturday, it was, uh, they weren't on the clock and that was intentional. And they asked Ingo to have a look at Jupiter because, they have had a Voyager, they had launched a Voyager craft, I believe it was, that was going to take pictures of Jupiter in about eight months' time. Yeah, John, what, what, what year was this again? 
1973. Uh, oh, you're, 19... you're talking about the Pioneer spacecraft, which preceded, Pioneer. preceded yeah, Pioneer's 10 and 11 went to Jupiter first. Yes. So he drew a wonderful sketch and then listed 12 items that, uh, he, notable items. And one of them was that there were rings around Jupiter. And science had balked, scientists, you know, mainstream scientists had balked at, the, at this idea in the past, but you say, no, there, there are rings, there's crystallized particles forming these rings. And moreover, as you move your consciousness inside the atmosphere of Jupiter, you find that invisible to the naked eye and telescopes, there's another ring around Jupiter that would appear to be in the sky. And moreover, there is a solid core inside Jupiter where there are mountains rising to, he estimates, 30,000 feet of elevation. So there's a lot going on on Jupiter. Uh, six of his 12 items were confirmed by 1975, and um, some of them have yet to be confirmed, but. He then went to look uh, in a separate experiment with the CIA. Uh, he and this is all detailed in his book called Penetration. And the penetration is a reference to him remote viewing the moon, and he is seeing the moon for some reason is allowing him to see into another dimension that is very close to ours but it's vibrating at a slightly different rate. And his viewings were all had this quality where there'd be a, a ripple or a waver as he's watching these other people work on the moon. He sees machines, he sees all this uh, infrastructure. Um, he said that the moon cannot be a natural object because it's hollow and uh, if you have a chance to read his book, Penetration, I, I highly recommend it. Uh, there's some astonishing finds on there. So, oh, there's his book. Item number two is uh, the cover of his book there, Penetration. And uh, 2A, in fact, is that slide with, uh, it has his sketch that he drew that day in April of 1973. And let's see, item... Three, oh, this is uh, one of your slides, Richard, from the Apollo 50th anniversary landing on the moon documentary I just mentioned uh, that you can watch on Paraflix. And a year ago, Richard, you asked me to put together a 3D model um, scaled and so forth of the sun, the earth, and the moon. And you wanted to recreate the sun, eclipse, the, the moon eclipsing the sun, and, you know, you get this light around the, the moon. Well, the idea well, was that we put in basic parameters of glass because the Apollo samples tell us that about 50% by weight of the rocks that the astronauts brought home and the fines, the soil, the regolith, it's glass, and it's silicon dioxide. So we're dealing with ordinary glass, so you take the refractive index of glass, you make a shell like 20, 30 miles high, you make multiple layers in it, you wrap it around the whole moon, 
You give it a computer program that tells how to deal with refraction and geometry and light bending and the distances, and you then stand back and let it run, and you see what you see. Yeah, I was... I was objecting to this project because, as you can see in the slides here, like items five through, gosh, how many do I have here? Like five through 11, let's say five through 12. I'm, I'm showing you how many different adjustments there are and different parameters for recreating these in a simulated 3D a 3D simulation, and I didn't feel I had the expertise to apply the real-time, you know, NASA data of, um, you know, the output of the moon, and I mean, there, there's like a hundred different factors I felt that I would have to verify and and and, uh, and you know, just search out with and apply to this program I use, Element 3D. And um, I think I said to you, we should get somebody from MIT or something who would jump on this. I, I'm too busy. And you said, just keep it simple. Just make, um, you know, the moon in the air. Put a light behind the moon, line it up. And, um, oh, like you said, put a little gra glass rim. It would be about 10 miles high, I think you said. And, um, yeah, let's see what it looks like. Forget all the other adjustments and so forth. So those are... Those are slides 14, 15, and 16, oh. and then 17. And indeed, without doing much work, just keeping it very simple, um, you can see, yes, the light is shining behind the moon. The moon is eclipsing the sun. And you do get the, the, reflect, the refraction effect, uh, you can see there. And Fascinating. Wow. Slides. Yeah, I mean, you could really, if somebody wanted to put the time into this, I don't know if any listeners out there are 3D modelers, but um, it would be a cool, fun project for somebody that um, teaches at the Rhode Island School of Design or that kind of thing. Or the Pasadena, we used to work with a group at the Pasadena School of Design. I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I haven't talked to them in years. Maybe they'd be interested. Okay. Hmm. Awesome. Um, 18, 19, and 20, I just took still uh, images when I was doing this video. Richard asked me to do a short video. Um, well, what I asked you to do is take the NASA video and yeah. do what NASA had done, but do it in reverse. In other words, what they've done is they've drained out all the color to make it look as boring and dull and gray as all the Apollo images that they've tinkered with. And I simply said, based on the raw live video I saw from the cameras that morning as they were closing in on their first pass around the moon, I said, just put the color back in. And if you want to hype it a little bit, you know, amp it up so people can see it easily, do that. And we'll tell everybody what you're doing. But remember, as David Sarita said on that first Artemis show a couple of weeks ago, you can't put color into a photograph that doesn't have the color. When you when you amplify it, when you when you uh, you know saturate it, when you bring out what's there, all you're doing is bringing out the data that's already resident in the image. You're not making it up. Exactly. So that video is item number twenty-two, and um, 
you can watch it's I think four minutes long and uh, there's some interesting imagery there for sure well why did and, you, and you click on it and why did you narrate what you see because as an artist as a graphics person um, I'm sure you were as mind-boggled as I was that what I was looking for is blatantly visible in other words science is nothing if it's not prediction if the moon is covered certainly on the far side with it heavily eroded on the near side by a shell of glass with multiple levels, then what you're going to see primarily as it interacts with sunlight is not the surface features, the detail. You're going to see the light patterns, the interference, you know, uh, light waves in the glass, like I showed up in that, you know, Crystal Palace in, in Madrid. And as you're moving at thousands of miles per hour relative to the moon, that angle between the spacecraft cameras, the moon, and the sun is going to change. And in, in, in the close-in orbits, it's going to change within minutes. That's like watching paint dry. So what I said to John was, just speed it up. Let's <clears throat> look at this in fast motion and see if we see interesting changes in the period of a few minutes. <clears throat> if you can compress, let's say, the... 90-minute eclipse by the moon of the Earth down to three or four minutes. And that's what he did in 22. So, John, take it away and narrate what you see in the video in 22. Well, the colors are obvious. And what I, where my mind was as I watched this was actually delicate arch in Utah because <laughs> part of the function of that arch or portal is to capture moonlight. And I thought, geez, wouldn't it be interesting to learn that when this arch was created long, long ago, the dome was intact. So the effect would have been, the arch's effect of capturing the moonlight would have been uh, much greater. And now, that's so an interesting was, idea. Yeah, I was thinking of it in terms of uh, the arches and, and what this would, how this would affect them, because I'm trying to decode how to turn on these arches so you can, like, delicate arch, uh, Russell goes, yeah, that's the one where you step through it and you fall off the cliff. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, you have to turn on the arch first, and then you step through it, and uh, you're fine. <laughs> In other words, it's a it's a it's some kind of a stargate or a portal through another dimension to someplace else in your model. Yes, I think within our own solar system on a number of planets. And but you and don't know that. I don't know. Remember, but, there are no such um, things as straight lines in space, so you could step through here and wind up in Andromeda. Yes, I think it can also take you to places very very far away. Um, one of the things that Ingo mentions in his book Penetration is that he sees a number of these bridges on the moon and he does not understand what the function is. They're not bridges as we understand them. And then one in particular, he calls it, it's a bridge to nowhere. It arches out of this crater and it just stops and it, it doesn't go across anywhere. Oh, it's like Sarah Palin's bridge in Alaska. Remember the big political fuss over the bridge to nowhere in Alaska? No. No. 
But yeah, I think. Well, maybe it's an unfinished seen, portal. You know, remember, you know, just because they're ETs or aliens doesn't mean they don't, you know, pull on their pants one leg at a time, all twenty legs or whatever. <clears throat> yeah. Yes, and it seems to be that he was seen uh, interdimensionally. He's looking into a dimension where there's other people that are looking back at him, but there's also the ETs that are they're kind of the you know, the, the bosses of, of our solar system, I guess, maybe a word, or the engineers, or, or this sort of thing. So we're dealing with two levels of um, intelligences here. Did so, he get the impression he was looking back through time or looking cross dimensions at something simultaneous, another like parallel reality where the moon didn't under go to war and it's still functioning the way it was designed and the solar system is intact, et cetera, et cetera. Simultaneous. That's exactly ah. right. Yes. So par parallel worlds. Parallel uh, dimension. And they could see him and pointed at him and, and he freaked out. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> You know, and, and this is like his book. He wrote a book called Starfire um, in the 70s, and that book uh, was very memorable to me because it's about a psychic who has a lot of power and the government finds out about him. And the one thing the government has been afraid of all these years is telepathy because telepathy is the language of the universe. Um, it's how the ETs speak and so on. And for some reason that Ingo could not understand is that we have this mass consciousness on Earth that seems to avoid that whole, you know, certain subjects. That's one of them. And why is that? We should be embracing telepathy research because that's going to get us uh, the ticket into the club and in, in, into the galactic community. And once we learn how to communicate telepathy, then the aliens will come talk to us. But and, Well, and, until... and last, and then we're going to segue in the next half hour to Andrew, and we're going to talk about phantom zones and are we in prison, and is somebody wanting to keep us in prison, and, you know, Ingo and others of his ilk, like you, have the abilities to, in terms of frequency, penetrate the shield and see the real reality behind the artificialness on which we're being forced at the moment to live. Richard, can you hear me? Yes, Barbara. Hi. Uh, yeah, I'd like to share um, a quick story about Ingo Swan. Oh, cool. Knew. Cool. Dinner must have a break. <laughs> no, my, my, I didn't have a dinner party. We were just having our dinner. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, um, I knew Ingo Swan uh, because I was at Stanford University. Uh, for many years, uh, undergraduate and graduate at large, and uh, uh, Russell Park was a very close friend and colleague of mine. In fact, he nominated me, and I became the second president of the parapsychology research group there in the Stanford's Palo Alto area, and um, he was the first. I was the second. This was, um, you know, the... Um, uh, the organization that was created by him and, and the famous astronaut. Um, but anyway, um, so I did Ingo Swan from the SRI experiments, Ingo and Pal put off and such, and I uh, earned the first ever accredited graduate degree in consciousness studies and experimental parapsychology in the world, which was at John F. Kennedy University. That was in June of 1981. I got my degree um, with Manley Hall. 
So the the I, the story with Ingo Swarm, and I only learned this after he passed away a few years ago. He lived in New York City. Uh, one of my dear friends and colleagues who used to be on our board is no longer, but he was on our board uh, of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, of which I'm the director of the board. Um, that is Christina Borgeson. Um, she was very close to Ingo Swan, and she knew him as a close personal friend in New York. She was in New Jersey, actually. Still is. And um, so he he was one of the few people he allowed to be with him at the very end of his life. He knew he was only had a few days to live. And he invited her to his apartment, and um, she went there. And he said, will you please take this plant? And it's this huge plant. I could uh, I could send you a picture of it. Uh, and if you want, you can put it up on uh, on, on items. Yeah, Barbara, on, we're at the uh, bottom of the hour, so hold it right there, okay? No, I know. I've got one more sentence. Just one more sentence. Okay. Because I, I can see there's one more minute to the bottom of the hour. And so um, he gave her that plant, and she said, what's important about this plant? And he said, this plant is the transducer and the amplifier of all of the signals that I get. And it's named Methuselah, and she has it, and she's offered me part of it. Oh, how interesting. How absolutely interesting. And that brings to mind a FICA story that I will tell when we come back. My guests this morning, too numerous to mention, go to the website and you'll see who they all are. Uh, thank you, Barbara. That's a very interesting story because plants, as part of my hyperdimensional research, turn out to be transducers. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. So, remote viewer par excellence. Ingo Swan and others, according to John and uh, Ingo's book, and backed up by Barbara's remarkable story about the plant. You probably don't know, because I haven't told anybody, that uh, in the very beginning of the 
research that we've been doing into the hyperdimensional physics model, I got so intrigued with a certain ficus in one of the mainstream uh, researchers' offices that he had wired. This is back during the Cleve Baxter era when it was a big fad to, you know, put uh, galvanometers on all kinds of, you know, animals and plant life and sea creatures and whatever. Um, um, it's all in Baxter's book. Anyway, this ficus tree got wired during a transit of Mercury across the sun. And as Mercury, the little planet Mercury, apropos of Ray Tomes last night, discussing, you know, six and nine minute cycles, at the speed of light it takes for the energy from the sun to cross the orbits of Mercury and Venus. And it shows up in radioactive decay rate changes in plutonium. Well, this ficus responded with a galvanometer attached to it in rapid tracings on a graph showing that it somehow was understanding and seeing or sensing the transit of Mercury in front of the sun as seen from Earth, something which we did not confirm with the Acatron for decades. So I can absolutely believe and corroborate Barbara's story that in Ingo Swan's life, a plant was a very important interdimensional transducer of the hyperdimensional physics underlying all of this. Okay, Andrew, you are at bat, and that's not a metaphor. Andrew actually is often at bat. Um, as an artist, as someone who is involved in film and video and all that, when you look at these Orion images, particularly the ones that John has, with the magic of uh, computers, reconstituted in terms of partially what we're going to originally see when the dam breaks and the insiders rush out through the open gates and show us the real stuff, what is your reaction about the moon, the real moon that we've been seeing in this mission? Well, Richard, before I say anything, I think Barbara had something else just to finish up there. Thank you, Andrew. I was just going to cut in and, and say the same thing. I thought maybe there was something wrong with the phones. Yeah, can you hear me, Richard? Yes, I can. I, I thought you yeah, said I guess, you Yeah, I guess you couldn't before. Just one sentence here. I'm about to send Cynthia and Keith the photo of Methuselah um, to post on. Why don't we go ahead and put it on, is it Jonathan Womack? Yeah, John, uh, John is our Ingo contact tonight. Yeah, so I, I'm sending that off right now. Okay, super. Well, thank you so much. Okay, Andrew. Yeah. So, Richard, um, I, when we went on to the break, I was looking at the number 20, Jonathan's number 21, the Artemis sample analysis. Right. So, I mean, that's stunning. <laughs> I, I mean, if, if, if that's drawing the color that's really drawing out the color that's really there, it, it's, well, it's beautiful, <laughs> I have to say. I mean, I'm just coming from an artist's perspective, but that's stunning work, John. I mean, I, I wow. Like, like, I think the thing that's bothered me, Richard, is, and I've talked about this with Ron and Robert sort of, you know, off air, that, you know, NASA's just been messing these with these images over and over again. And, it, and it's very annoying because you just, 
well, I mean, you have to do all this work to draw to, to pull anything out. And like you said, I mean, what 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 point do we get where when we're finally going to get some honest, well, imagery and so we can make honest interpretations? I mean, when like Biden the signs the damn NDAA. Yeah, I wanted to ask a question either to you or Barbara. So why is he having to do this? I mean, this seems like a huge step in a like. Is this a another slow burn disclosure? Yes, I mean, of I'm course, sure. of course, of course. This is all pre-planned on the ritual timetable. Remember, I've been saying, make no wine before it's time. There is a time when we're all supposed to become adults, and yeah. you can't do it before. And I was told this decades ago that this was all locked in stone. And of course, as an idiot that I was, I didn't believe them. And it took me, you know, half a century to realize that whoever's controlling the calendar and the timetable, they have for their reasons a calendar when this will all become public. But go back to Brookings. What do they say? It's going to take at least a generation, maybe two, before people don't freak out with cats and dogs living together and all that when they find this stuff out. And what was it, Barbara? Hang on a sec. What was it, Barbara said the other night? There are certain parts of this that are so terrible. We're never supposed to know. Well, I don't buy that for an incident. It may be terrible yeah. to the folks inside. Was that Ron? Yes. Go ahead. Yes. I'm, okay. I'm building up ahead of, ahead of curmudgeonliness here. Because uh, the relative to what Barbara said in the beginning, and thank you, Barbara, that was wonderfully detailed about the um, way that the uh, this NDAA thing works. Uh, the problem is that doesn't it piss everybody out there off? Doesn't it even piss you off, Richard, that they think that any whoever you want to call they, whoever you want to put the capital T on, that they want to decide when we're adults? Well, it, it pisses mean, me off, but there's not a damn thing I can do about it except I look at the what we're about well, to. Well, then, then all this disclosure is meaningless. No, it's there's not. Nothing we can do about it. No, 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 no. Because you don't know. See, the thing is, going back to McNamara, you don't know what you don't know. My model has been there's a ritual timetable. That's a model. Yes. That's not reality. That's my projection based on data that is incomplete. It could be that we're having a huge influence. It could be What's that all, all, all these people pushing, pushing, pushing is finally breaking the dam that would stay in place for another 50 to 100 years if we hadn't pushed. Yeah, that's just counting on gravity to pull all the water down when the dam breaks. You are uh, being a curmudgeon. Uh, or you're looking no, a gift horse in the mouth. Like, I, don't, sure, no, I don't think it's a gift horse. I, what's the first law of war? No plan survives contact with the enemy okay them we're the enemy and so therefore they have to keep adjusting this yeah but they're but their hubris their hubris is orders of magnitude beyond anything that we can imagine as civilians they really think they really think they are masters of the universe and they can control this and i don't want to disabuse them of the fact that they're wrong just let them think they're controlling it and watch what happens do you know what they are? They're psychological plywood. You know what plywood is for? You use a bunch of thin layers because it makes it stronger than a solid piece would. Mm-hmm. This is not, you know, people act like there's one avatar or god figure that's behind all of this. And everybody gets their carts in a row behind it and say, well, we're part of it. We're part of it. We're See, part of it. We count on theory. each other for mutual reinforcement. Ron, theory, it's, uh, this is kind of a stupid conversation. So are you. No, I'm not. Nah. 
The NDAA is real fact. It's about to be signed. It's going to give people license to tell the truth when the only reason they have is to make a lot of money. Well, that's you know that non-disclosure agreements don't have to be disclosed. This, so therefore, this obviates them all. Don't you get it? It wipes them away with a clean slate. No matter what mm-hmm. they signed, it's irrelevant to the new law. Otherwise, law would never change. New no, laws supplant. Like new laws supplant old laws all the time. Andrew, you got to break in. Well, Why? okay, go ahead, Andrew. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to cut into your time. I just got a long list here of <laughs> clarifications. Go ahead. Well, I, I wonder if another part of this, Ron, is the refinement of the delivery system. And uh, Richard mentioned um, Brookings and you know NASA's commissioning of that report and. I just want to go for a little sideline here, which I think relates. So today um, uh, we were sitting around with my, my, we were about to have lunch and, and I was sitting with a couple of my kids and we were watching some NFL football or something. And I flipped the channel cause there was commercials and on comes the Jetsons and everybody knows the Jetsons. Oh, it's uh, George. Yeah. 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 So that's on. And then, you know, it's a funny little story going on. And in fact, it was um, George and his dog, what was this dog's name again? Um, Elroy. No, the dog Elroy. Oh, it was. You're right. Okay, and they witness a a armed vehicle getting robbed by robbers. Anyways, what it ends up being is the robbers are actors and they're filming a whole thing, and it's the whole thing. But when George goes to bed with his wife, they're in two separate beds. Yeah, and I looked over, yes. Yeah, and I looked over at my young son, who's he just turned eleven, and and he kind of looked at me, and I said, "You know why they're in separate beds?" And he goes, "He says, aren't they married?" And I said, "Yeah, but that was the, that was the times. So you didn't show that, especially to children, a man and a woman in bed." My my point is actually is the, the the phasing of that goes back to the '30s, where for a time married people slept in the same bed in the '30s movies. And then the Legion of Decency came in, yeah. And suddenly it became, you know, not good to show married people like Lucy and Ricardo. They slept in right. separate beds, and then the evolution of clock swung back, and now of course almost anything goes. But society takes yeah. a long time to evolve. So the fact that yeah. it's taken us generations to get to where we're on the threshold of finding out who the hell we are and what we're doing in this place. To me, it's not about being pissed. It's about we're winning. We're winning. Well, well, and well, Richard, let me let me just finish. So, you know, like this sort of idea of one of the things in the Brookings report, they they constantly have in their index these studies on the power of television, and you know there was a lot of worry and a lot of you know like interest about well, what is television doing to people? Like, and I, I really th- and then one of the other things that in that report I remember reading about was they were very concerned about creating a worldwide network or web to connect communication, and in particular they were studying very closely um, the uh, development of you know uh, media and communication in sort of more underdeveloped societies. And I really wonder if we've just had to have to come to a point. Oh, and this is another piece. So when the whole COVID thing was going on and and people were being locked in and all that around the world, one of the articles I read about was they were talking about how this became obvious, actually, that large swaths of our Earth don't have access to the Internet. 
and it's a big concern to sort of the powers that be. So I well, I mean, why I, do I, you think Musk is spending billions on exactly. the Starlink system to wire exactly. the whole world, and now he just kind of picked up Twitter because he's got his own platform to put something out when the you know what hits the rotating kitchen appliance. Exactly, Richard. So I, I just wonder if all this is groundwork to making sure. I've said this before, but it may be in a different context, but um, this idea of testing the communication networks and making sure almost instantaneously everyone can have the information right yep. away. Now, that's a positive way of looking at it, obviously, but I think it's part of it, like even if it is more of a – Well, look at where he's got his fingers in the pie. Yeah. Space flight on the cheap yes. makes it accessible, democratizes it. He's taking eight civilians – who haven't signed a damn thing to look close up at the moon. They're going down to 120 miles. If you can't see as an artist and a photographer what's there on the moon at 120 miles, then you do not belong on the trip. Then he's developing the communications platforms all over the world, Starlink, to beam these images into every damn village and individual cottage on the planet, no matter where you are, in the African belt, in the Siberian steppes, in the depths of England or in Ukraine, and finally, he's got a, his arm around Twitter, and what the heck that's all about, I'm not quite sure. But ultimately, that will be there to send forth real images and videos when the time comes. <laughs> I think he's got – rather than his arm around, I think he's got his foot up the um, rear end of. Uh, he's yeah, trying but, to destroy but, it. He's trying, no, well, uh, that's my feeling. He's trying to destroy it on purpose for, well, for good reasons. Yeah, but Ron, there's other platforms. The point is that I, I think, yes, yes. I think we're, we're on to something here. I mean, let's look at your phone, right? Like, you know, when, when it wasn't yes. working properly, <laughs> you, yes. you were gone and, and, you know, and you were lost. That's a hole on, on our team. And I, I just think that there's something here about the interconnectivity and yeah, Richard, again, and maybe it comes down to some sort of moment that it has to happen within. I, I don't know. I mean, we're, we're, you've been speculating about that for like 30 years, and I mean, who knows and, until it happens. But there's something yeah. about this time. Yes, Ron, go. Yeah, it, no, relative, relative to what you just said, yes. And I've been terribly lonely because I couldn't, uh, <laughs> uh, couldn't get in touch with people when I wanted to. And well, I, Blanche... And like Blanche Dubois, thanks to the kindness of strangers, <laughs> I uh, managed to, you know, to surmount that, and it seems to be working fine. But well, Ron, uh, you hit on Ron. You yeah. sorry to. I, I know we're getting close, and I don't want to hog it all up. But you hit on something. So, okay, again, little side story. I'll make it really fast. My my wife hosts a party. Well, I guess I'm included because I have to bring out tables and all these things. <laughs> Every notice how he said that so diplomatically. <clears throat> Yeah. Hey, I, I got check marks for watching a movie with her last night, Richard. So she said I was good to come on the show tonight. So anyway, oh. hey, he has to live there, Richard. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, let me just. So we have this party. Um, it's just just after Christmas, and it's the darn thing is growing. There are people that we don't even know that hear about it that want to come. And friends of ours who, who also sends out invitations can't decide, you know, who he should allow to come because it's just you know there's there's a limit how many people can be. It. My point is. People are lonely all over the planet, and there's so much of that going on. And what more could unify us? I mean, Richard, you've talked about this forever. 
but to see that we are united in this extraordinary, if not demolished past that can be reborn. I mean, think of how that could, wow, just, you know, fill you with, with uh, awe and, 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 and realize that we are a graced race you know, and a race of human beings. And wow, I mean, that would bring us back, bring us together quick and have us all wanting to chat, chat to each other about a lot of things and not be lonely. I don't know. That's just something that you, by saying that, Ron, you just triggered me there. So No, yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, uh, uh, I think it's valid. And it's the, uh, but it's been like so many other things, that capability has been subverted by people that have somewhat uh, more uh, selfish uh, desires relative to it. For instance, people talk about how uh, how much time people waste with social media, and yet uh, looking at this looking at this phone, uh, which has a really high resolution screen, and very brilliant colors. It's hypnotic. Oh, I, yes. haven't been ex- yeah. I haven't been exposed to this to the extent that most of you have because I disdain oh, these things. Oh dear. And so they, nothing. Just, yes. Come oh on. yeah. So I stare at my I stare at my brilliantly colored picture of a cow that I've got on for wallpaper, and I just I get, it's I see why people get hooked on these things. Well, someone and, and is wrong. typing. Please mute. Yeah, someone is typing. And Ron, you bring up something yeah. again. So, um, and Richard brought up, uh, uh, well, not Stanley Kubrick, but Arthur C. Clarke in 2001, A Space Odyssey. I believe you said, Richard. But anyways, I did it, one of my posters. And in 2001, A Space Odyssey, the proportions of the monolith are repeated over and over again in that movie, whether it be, you know, sort of little telescreens or certain panels in the walls. Like I, re- I saw this um, film review on it, and some people think that what what uh, Kubrick was trying to communicate – I mean, I, I, mean, I, I, I would – suggest he was in communication as well on this concept, if it's real, with with uh, Clark as well, but that the screen, the TV, this, you know, our phones, our, 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 our video screens or whatever, is the way this information is going to be brought out. Or, Absolutely. Or at least edu- yeah. And when yeah. Musk gets the Starlink system up and running, there won't be a Bushman or a Hottentot or a backwoodsman in Australia who doesn't instantly see the exact same lunar astonishing landscapes that we all do here in the so-called West. Richard, I have a Facebook friend in, in the Gambia, you know, that little that little state, that little country um, on the West Coast of Africa, beautiful. And he has a phone. That's how he communicates with me. He's got a little phone right, that he's able to, you know, use. And, and when he goes to – he has to go to the internet cafe to, to do his, you know, his communications and, you know, that way. But the point is this is a, a, a young Muslim man, a handsome guy, a great guy, a big, big, huge family, beautiful beaches there in the Gambia. And um, he is going to get that information too along with his village. Mm-hmm. See, I worked with, at Goddard with what was called the ATS project, where we were using a uh, huge dish communication satellite called the Applications Technology Satellite, ATS, which I wrote a piece of basically attributing it to Arthur and his visions of satellite communications, which he loved. Arthur loved it when you mentioned him. Anyway, um, the idea was that we would have kids in India or in Africa on bicycles pedaling generators 
on bicycles to power the TVs that were receiving live information and television signals and programs from the ATS uh, satellite that was being kind of breadboarded by NASA to see if this would work in out in the boonies. Now, of course, Musk is supplanting that primitive technology with something that every village can afford. You know, we got flat screens, we got little things like like uh, Ron is holding in his hand, mesmerized by the the colors. So we're, we've evolved to where the world is wired, humanity is about to be wired, so we can share our common, staggeringly different heritage of who we really are and share it with almost everybody on the planet simultaneously. I, I agree. Okay. You have some items to go through. We got 10 minutes till the top of the hour. Go. Sure. Okay. So if you go to my items on the other side, of the, where is it? I have to find it. <laughs> Fast links to items. Go to me, Andrew. Uh, I got three posters. I've shown this in the past, but uh, Richard want me to summarize a little bit. So yeah, my go, number go one, it. I call it, I call it reflection of a lunar dome. And I have some um, scans from your book, The Dark Mission, The Secret History of NASA. And Richard, you, why don't you do a quick synopsis of what this is? Um, I have two images, one of Mitchell under the glass and then another one showing. Well, these are, these are various images from NASA, which have been quietly supplanted by the, you know, they're, they're supplanting the fake ones, but putting real ones in the archives. So when this all hits the rotating kitchen appliance and reporters, mainstream reporters, like from the Times or the Washington Post or the the uh, you know Time Magazine or CNN start poking around, NASA can say, well, we never concealed anything. It's right there in the archive. And who, of course, are they going to believe? They're lion eyes or history. So on the left, Mitchell under glass is uh, uh, Edwin Mitchell, the astronaut on Apollo 14, who became a remote viewer, founded the uh, uh, you know extraordinary uh, society there in California, looking into so-called paranormal stuff. Um, the right-hand panel at the top is uh, Alan, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Gene Sh um, um, uh, Schmidt, Dr. Schmidt, under glass um, at the Apollo 17 site. And of course, the orange soil is the panel to the right. Below that is one of Bean's paintings showing the astronauts on uh, Apollo 15 exploring the Hadley Rill. But the landscape is strangely colored uh, as is the one below it, because, of course, what Bean was doing was channeling the real moon where the surface colors are coming from the refractions in the glass that I showed in some of my images, as opposed to the minerals of the surface, because the surface of the moon is pretty much gray unless you light it up with different kind of uh, uh, light from overhead from refractions in the dome. <laughs> Yep, and also the textures in the sky. He used to he's his first paintings Ooh. when he sort of turned you know into the space artist, which was he's been compared to the great Western artists you know of the of the great of the great West of the United States, um, like Remington, but, for instance. Like Remington, exactly, and a wonderful artist. But anyways, um, he had like the black sky, the sort of dull gray moonscapes, and he made this transition. And he started to say, well, I'm just taking liberties. This is how I feel it is. You know, this is how I feel I want to see it. Verily like, Emily really Dickinson, am. tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Yes, and, you know, with, with the, the Mitchell under the glass, you know, we see these striations in the sky that you've brought out through enhancement, but there's these, these strange 
geometric patterns. In it. Oh, did I say that I scanned the original from um, uh, Ken Johnston's stash right. that he was at, at Houston in charge of photographs for the scientists, and he was ordered by his superiors at NASA at the Manned Spacecraft Center to destroy all but one copy of the Apollo films. And even though he was a young kid, like I was about the same age at CBS, he went, what? And he stole one set and took it home, sent another set to his alma mater, his university. And from his private stash, he then gave me eight by 10 glossies that I scanned. And lo and behold, the NASA data that they've been looking at secretly and privately, there's no resemblance to the fake data they've been putting out to the American taxpayer for half a century. Yeah, and this these textures in the sky is something that Bean just – he just did it all the time. And I have um, my number six. This one's called Our World at My Fingertips from 2005. And he's, you know, he's putting his fingers – like he would, he's imagining – maybe he did this on the moon – um, or he's imagining his fingers, you know, when you, you put your finger around the, the moon at night or preferably not the sun and <laughs> you don't want to do that. But again, Richard, the sky is – or his, his background. I, I, I can know it's a painting, but it's revealing something deep, and he was just texturing the heck out of it. And remember how he described the actual black sky of the moon. Do you remember? Well, of course. Yeah, go ahead. He described it as looking like black patent leather shoes. Yeah. And that went ding, 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 because black patent leather shoes are not velvet. They don't absorb all light. There's this subtle glistening. So when you looked at the dark black sky of the vacuum of the moon, instead of seeing velvet where it absorbed all light, he saw it glistening like a dome of ancient eroded glass. Yeah. So if many clues. Would've... We have so oh, much yeah. overwhelming evidence and still people say we're nuts. Well, That's frustrating, that it... Ron. That's what's frustrating. Yeah, and we get it in the commercial. Yeah, we get it in models, yeah. model kits. Um, I have in my number five. I call it Strange Skies. But in this model kit, this monogram model kit of the first, first lunar landing, and we went over this a few weeks ago, I think, I had a whole bunch of model kits that showed the same kind of sky. Instead of showing the sky, you know, the, the, the sky behind the, the moon is black with stars, this artist who was commissioned to do this piece is showing it with this weird, you know, haze and, 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 and even structure. And my last image, I know we're coming close to the, um, to the uh, um, break here. This is something I did back in 2017. I, I did like a partial dome um, idea. And if you zoom in on it, whoops. I did zoom in on then I zoomed it back out. I was trying to get the same kind of crisscross pattern. What I should probably do is cover the entire sky with this, Richard, in, in my illustration. But yeah, these are sort of my reflections on um, what I think we're seeing up there. And um, I don't, I don't, we don't have time to go to my next ones right now because I think we're coming up to the break. We will do that after the break. And on cue, my guests this morning are too numerous to mention. That happens a lot on this show. It's really peculiar. So, <clears throat> take a pause, take a break, go take a look at uh, John's number 22. That is so amazing, so astonishing. And lend one ear to our promos because to do all this work politically in the next few months, we need some infusion of listeners, subscribers to Club 19.5. We need some cash so you can donate. And we need a lot of help, and I'm going to tell us 
tell you in the next hour how you can specifically help push this across the finish line. We're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. It's now Monday morning here in the land of enchantment. Welcome back, everyone. We got one hour to go. We're going to go after we finish through Andrew's materials because he's got some pretty relevant things there, particularly in terms of one of those images, which um, I don't think is contemporary. And then we're going to bring on Robert, Robert Morningstar, who was our kind of civilian version of a CIA spook analyst, a guy who knows many different patterns and has many different secrets to reveal. Probably not tonight, but uh, at some future show. And then we're going to wind up with Ron because Ron is going to take us from the moon to where in every NASA Artemis commercial or promo, they keep saying the Artemis generation is going to the moon because it's a stepping stone for the ultimate adventure beyond, which is to the planet Mars. So we're going to show you a few of the things on Mars. And then I'm going to give you all a mission, should you choose to accept it. So, Andrew, please continue. Thank you. Yeah, if we go to my number two under my items, this one is... Oh, I called it um, Clavius Crater Ancient Evidence. And Richard, I'm going to let you take over just describing what these images are. I mean, the one on the left is obvious. That's a shot of the moon and Clavius Crater as we see it. 
Uh, I, I, well, this is I the image that both uh, uh, Robert and I independently discovered. He in, he discovered it through, a, I think, a Polish magazine or re reproduced in time from a Polish magazine. And I found it on the NASA, uh, you know, uh, uh, astronomical image of the day site. They linked it to a website in Texas by an amateur astronomer who no more took this image than I did. And in fact, I call it the time capsule image because it shows the moon not as it appears now. I, I dare anybody to find anything in these images of which we published slews of them over the last several months and years to find anything even comparable on the contemporary moon because we're looking at miles high skyscrapers. So I think this was a time capsule image that somehow fell into NASA's possession and they put it out under a kind of a weird disclaimer claiming some amateur in Texas took it when 20 seconds of research shows you that's impossible. I think it was taken probably from an ancient archive that the Apollo astronauts found on the moon and brought home. And my likely suspect is so-called Data's head, which was literally, if I'm right, brought home 50 years ago tonight by the crew of Apollo 17 to Houston, where they spent untold years and maybe decades figuring out how to talk to it, how to download its digital information, and then they published it in published media under the guise of an amateur contemporaneously photographing the moon from Texas. And that leads us to your number three, which is a stunning black and white version of number two above from the photograph, because we're literally looking at ancient sites on the moon, like Clavius, where isn't it curious? The Clavius in this ancient image, if I'm right, is surrounded by towering tens of miles high skyscrapers, and it was Clavius where Arthur Clarke and Stanley Kubrick put their pivotal base in the 23rd century on – no, 21st century on 21st, yes. the moon. Yeah. No, this – again, my interpretation, Richard, but I'll tell you, in these spires from that um, – what you call an ancient archive, there are some shapes there. Aren't there? Yeah, that remind me of what we're seeing in the southern hemisphere of the moon that Keith Laney brought out. If we come out of that – Except they're much bigger. Yes. It's yeah, like the yeah, ones that Laney found are much smaller, like human-scale versions yeah. of something much more ancient because cultures borrow and borrow and borrow and they hand yeah. down and they hand down and they hand down and things get smaller when your technology is not up to the task to make it bigger. Exactly. And so if we go to my number three real quick, and I've shown these images before, but it's worth coming back to on the left-hand side, I scroll down enlarging, enlarging, enlarging in DeForest, which is a you know lunar impact crater on the south, in the southern hemisphere. And one particular bone, the way I could describe it, like this wishbone uh, Upside uh, down formation. Wishbone. Yeah. Yeah. It, and and I, I zoomed in as, as close as I could. And on the right side, as Folks know I've said this a million times. I did a little graphic short, which actually is an expanding story, um, which, by the way, Robert, I found – I remember Robert had published it on his uh, UFO Digest. Robert, thank you again for that. I, I'd forgotten about that. And in uh, a couple weeks back, I did a drawing of as if, you know, 
the astronauts are walking up to this thing. Again, it's from my imagination, but it doesn't take much to be able to extrapolate something out of these things. And, and as I'm saying, this sort of style, this architectural style is to me is I'm seeing it in those spires on Clavius. So there's a consistent or at least a, um, like you say, Richard, a, a hand-me-down understanding. And I mean, it's all on the moon and that's all in the Southern hemisphere. So when we do go there, I think you're right. I think we're going to find some stunning things and, uh, it's going to be amazing. How can we have all these people in Artemis or in Musk program or the collaboration? And we're not counting the Europeans and the Russians and the Chinese. Chinese want to build a base, etc. How can we have all these people rushing around and not seeing what's really there? It's impossible. You can't suppress everybody, particularly in an era of social media and the gadget that Ron is staring at, staring longingly at right now. <laughs> <laughs> by his own admission. Okay, um, so are, are, are we done? Yes. Yeah. Exactly on a table with I'm using a headset, but okay. Super. Okay, so that's the perfect segue to Mr. Morningstar. First of all, big picture, what are your reaction to Artemis and what we found? Hi, everybody. Good show. Very good show. My reaction is I'm very happy, elated, that Artemis worked and returned to Earth and that the hardware works. I'm disappointed with the video. I think NASA's messing around. You think? Uh, again. again, no, you, you, you listed all of the same objections that I have about the, the video. And uh, the one of the moon uh, passing by the spacecraft, I thought was just totally hokey. And the moon is out of focus. The spacecraft is in perfect focus right there in front of our faces, which we don't need to see. And in the background, <laughs> the moon is going by. It's uh, out of focus. And also... Now, you're, 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 you're talking about after they did the power burn and they were coming around the night side to make the final turn to Earth, right? No, I'm talking about the video that you have uh, on, on the site. Uh, let me give you the number. It's the one where... It's well, this crap. is 22. This is John's video, right? Um, I thought I saw it in your. Well, I chat. have I have a much uh, uh, the so-called Earth Eclipse video. Yeah, the Earth Eclipse. Okay, yes, I guess it is John's video. Yeah, no, and, it's in John's um, video, and the, and there's this huge curve, and you're crossing over uh, Copernicus and Oceanus Procellarum, the Sea of Storms, and yeah. you're really close. And again, forget the details. That's not where the action is here. It's the color. Yeah, the colors. The colors. The fine. colors are extraordinarily revealing because that ain't the colors you get from geology, and they move with the angle of the spacecraft, which is a dead yeah. giveaway. It's suspended yeah. above the surface in a glass like of layers. Fine. Now oh. let's go to my pictures. <laughs> okay. And and my my set of uh, items for tonight's show. I find it very interesting that um, hi Jonathan, I enjoyed your presentation very much. I'm glad he was talking about telepathy because I think that my section shows that all of us here are operating telepathically, though subconsciously or unconsciously. And Barbara brought up the pro the subject of the NDAA and the provisions. 
uh, whistleblower provisions, and just by chance, mm-hmm. I chose an article. No, it's not it. chance. Come on. It's not chance. It's my brain. My brain is going around <clears throat> rummaging and looking for If, if this really team is not in residence by now, right. we, we should all so, quit unless the better guys get, you know, get on here. Yeah. Is there just no a number? The number on this, a preliminary look at the UAP-related provisions of the proposed FY 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, House Resolution 7776. Now, that's a really nice number. Isn't it? I'm concerned. It's beautiful. So many tetrahedral spins in that number. Yeah, plus, uh, if I recall correctly, the orbit of Mars is in there, too. Yeah. So anyway, the... uh, not to waste a lot of time on this, Barbara covered it very well, but here's a secure method for authorized reporting, safe harbor, or UAP whistleblower provisions. And this interesting little group that they have, the All Domain Anomalies Resolution Office. I love that name. I love I like that name. That's really cool. So let me go on. Um, as far as the budget and uh, spaceware is concerned, this week uh, – the Defense Department, the Air Force, uh, debuted the B-21 bomber. The B-2 Spirit has turned into the B-21, and they made their first public appearance. So I included two articles there. One was an article that was uh, describing the coming debut, and then the actual release of the um, the silhouette, the, the front view of the the Raider, the Raider. And do you know offhand where it get that got that name? Uh, I think it has. Uh, it's taking it from uh, probably a World War II plane, Sky Raider. No, 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 no. But you're very close. They, yeah. they again. There's a there's a public story, and then there's a real story. Mm-hmm. The public cover story is they decided to name it after the Jimmy Doolittle raid on Tokyo uh-huh. from the right. Pacific back when uh, right after. Uh, you know, Pearl Harbor, yep. we wanted to strike back, so it's supposed to be the you know, homage to Jimmy Doodle's raid on Tokyo. I think it's more like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders myself. of the Lost Ark, of course, that can't escape us. With all the That's, sevens. Yeah, it's very good. Excellent. So um, I found these two very important. And also the debut of the Raider at this time. Uh, shows me that they're releasing uh, going to peekaboo. They take a B2 and turn it into a B21. And I'd just like to refresh uh, everyone's memories. Uh, we had 21 B2 bombers. And from my uh, spooky perch, I was able to find out that we have two kinds of B2 and now B21s. Of the 21 B-2 spirits that we had or have, um, 14 14 were conventional, and seven had this high-tech ability to warp uh, space-time and create gravity waves. Oh, that's Paul LaViolette's uh, electrogravitic version. I learned about this in 1993. So did he. But I had to keep it secret. I came from my... A very close friend of mine in the United States Navy, and he explained to me how the advanced technology version of the spirit energizes, electrifies the leading edge and the trailing edge of the wing, 
And this uh, polarity creates uh, warping. Which goes uh, back to the Byfield-Brown, uh, right. T. Townsend-Brown right. experiments. Yeah. The other interesting thing they told me, or he told me, was that when the uh, the ship is in that gravity glide, that they actually drive electricity into the engines so that the engines are not just the regular propulsion, but there's kind of an electromagnetic propulsion. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's what's called a regenerative braking system. You're trading mm -hmm. gravity for electrical energy, potential yeah. energy for, you know, electrical storage. Yeah. Now we come to the good stuff. Here's the other telepathic part. Richard and I haven't spoken in days, and both of us today pulled out pictures by Andrew McCarthy. <laughs> Andrew McCarthy, uh, I, he's a very, very talented astronomer and an excellent photographer. So I thought I'd give you all a treat and give you two color pictures of the moon so that we could compare. So if you click Andrew McCarthy's Twitter page, you get a glorious, overly saturated color picture of the moon, which uh, intrigues me. Though, since we found those, the original two colors of the moon, uh, as you related a couple of years ago, the true colors of the moon are revealing the the formation of the moon. Uh, it's uh, pretty clear to me. So I'd just like to say that I believe that the Mare Tranquillitatis was created by a huge meteor or asteroid impact, and that the ejecta that was thrown out revealed that orange color that you very, uh, Andrew put it out, uh, he inserted a picture of the orange uh, soil that was discovered in Shorty Crater, bright, brilliant orange. So I think that's one of the substrates of the moon. And when this asteroid co collided and created this incredible chasm, which is the Mare Tranquillitatis, the ejecta headed to what we would call the Northwest and piled itself on the Mare Serenitatis. So when you compare in this uh, Andrew McCarthy picture, the all of the rust, look at all the rust color in the mm -hmm. uh, Mare Sea Serenity, Mare Serenitatis, and even spilled over into the northern regions and over, over, all the way over to the crater Plato in the uh, Oceanus Procellarum. So this is, it's wonderful stuff uh, for me. Well, the main difference between the colors on the near side, which is what we're looking at in Robert's second item, where it says true colors of the moon, and the colors that, that Andrew, Andrew, that John has brought out in the video of the far side, are that the colors on the far side are the glass, because it's, it's much thicker, it's less damaged, it's less, you know, eroded, shattered, abraded, et cetera. The glass of the dome on the near side is almost gone. I keep telling people it's the consistency of cigarette smoke, which is why the Apollo crews and the unmanned spacecraft, except in certain weird instances, can safely land through it because it's almost not there. It's like cigarette smoke, you know, floating in the wind. The colors you're seeing on the near side are the geology of the moon's surface, the ground, the mineralization, the the, the doping with metals and, you know, titaniums and other other elements that we're familiar with on Earth because they upwelled as volcanic upwellings after these huge impacts that created 
those basins, but frankly, I think we're directed strikes to eliminate the huge cities that used to be in those basins. I mean, we're talking about a war, a huge interplanetary war in this model that resulted in half the moon being essentially destroyed and the other half might as well be, except the glass shell covering the other side is pretty much uh, like it used to be. So we see it in these extraordinary prismatic colors. They're not the same as the colors on the front. Right. Could the glass I wanted be to say something else. About, Wait a John, um, John? Could the glass be interdimensional? Ingo was looking into another dimension uh, when he's viewing the moon, and I wonder if the glass has some sort of interdimensional property. Well, given that the, in that Chinese image, which shows that there's an upper layer that's absorbing, you know, which, which is interchanging energy with the sun and absorbing it, um, as I said to Ron the other night when I looked at one of these images, I think this might be smart glass, meaning that it's not just, you know, like, a, like an inverted uh, salad bowl. It's got active properties. It's intelligent. It stores energy. It runs electricity. It filters electromagnetism. It may actually have a hyperdimensional torsion component. In other words, it's not dumb architecture. It's smart architecture, and so all bets are off. Yeah. I wanted to mention uh, to Jonathan, I'm glad that you brought up Ingo Swan. I, I met Ingo Swan here in New York as well. I've read his book, Penetration. I've also been teaching remote viewing courses, month-long courses over the last few months. I'll be starting another one at uh, the end of this month, probably around the 22nd, if anyone is interested. But here's, here's another... Wait, wait, how can, no, how can they sign up? How, how can they sign up? How can they sign up? Oh, they contact me uh, through uh, Robert Morningstar at proton.me. Robert Morningstar at proton.me. I worked for years to find the easiest email to remember. And if you know an Adam, <laughs> you know Proton, and you know me, it's easy to remember. Robert Morningstar at proton.me. So send me an, a note that you're interested in the remote viewing course. But what I want to say very important. I also know Russell Targ, and I had the privilege earlier this year of having a private conversation on Zoom with Russell and uh, Jack Sarfati. And Russell brought up the subject that Jonathan brought up, the remote viewing of Jupiter by Ingo Swan mm. and telling NASA, hey, you know, Jupiter has rings. Like, no, you're crazy. No, that's new Jupiter. It has rings, and he drew them. I have never seen uh, the, the diagram. Thank you, Jonathan, for providing that diagram that Ingo uh, wrote or uh, drew. But here's the important thing for me that really floored me. Russell Targ said that remote viewing operates faster than the speed of light. And the proof that he offered was that he was there in the room when this happened. And he said that Ingo Swan went into his mediumship or his trance or his remote viewing in 30 seconds to one minute. And he was there in Jupiter. He was there orbiting Jupiter and looking at the rings. And as we know, it takes 54 minutes for light from Jupiter to arrive at Earth. It takes eight minutes for the light from the sun to arrive here. But Jupiter is so much farther. It takes 54 minutes. But that statement by Russell Targ really floored me. Ingo Swan's remote viewing skills operated 
faster than the yeah, speed of light. Yeah, but if they're light. hyperdimensional, of course yeah, they would. Speed of thought. Yeah, yeah, they're not part of the clock. They're, they're not right. in this dimension. That's right. Absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. So we're all so in we're agreement. Not limited. Right. So Einstein is wrong. Einstein. I describe it in oh, one yes. of my not. Sorry, Robert, but I describe it in one of my novels, yeah. uh, where Jack Ramsey finds himself out of his body and he's flying around the earth and space. He understands that the flying at the speed of thought makes the unbreakable speed limit of the universe put forth by Einstein yes. seem like a broken down Model T yes. Ford where he's driving a sleeked up Maserati, the speed of yeah. thoughts. I'm yeah. sorry, John. I think that's completely wrong. <laughs> well, we can ask that. We're still on this uh, subject of, of these pictures, but I wanted to thank you for that. It brings back really good memories, and the book Penetration is, is fantastic. In my courses, which I began teaching about five years ago at the Edgar Casey Center in New York, they were a month long, and on the last night, we would go to the moon where I would teach the training uh, methods and the breathing techniques, and on the last night, we would venture to the moon, and my students... My students saw the bridges that Ingo Swan saw. Uh, another student found herself in an underground uh, cavernous factory. She said that it was full of aliens. They were just going about their business. They were very robotic, very mechanical. They were packing stuff and moving stuff and just totally oblivious of her presence there. But the gentleman who really stunned me was a man who came in on the very last night of the, the webinar, or the seminar in those days. And um, he said, I'm sorry, I, did, I couldn't take the course. I've just gotten to New York, but I'd like to take the class. So he took the class and we went through the, the meditation. When he came back, he said something amazing. He said, you know, I, I think there's something wrong. I don't know, I, got, I went into a cavern but I couldn't believe what I was smelling. And I said, what? He says, he says, I'm a spelunker. I'm a cave diver. What I found, I was in a cavern and it was full of wet rocks. And we know that there's no water on the moon. And I said to him, wrong. I just published an article. What year was this? What year? Uh, this was uh, 2016, 2017. Oh, yeah. He obviously well, didn't hear the, hear the word. Yeah. I had published the University of Tennessee's monograph, Water is Ubiquitous on the Moon. And they came to that conclusion from studying the contents of the lunar rocks that were brought back by Edgar Mitchell. And they concluded that there was so much limestone, which can only be formed in water, there's so much limestone in, in the samples he brought that the moon had to be full of water uh, at one time. And of course, my theory is that a lot of the water is underground. So this spelunker from Colorado did the meditation and found himself in a lunar cave smelling wet rocks. Wow. That was hmm. very impressive. That, that, that's a multi-sensory immersive experience. Yes, you know, this one thing is uh, remote viewing has so many levels that everybody's thinking about the, the vision part, the seeing part. But remote viewing involves every sense, including eyesight, hearing. Yeah, but smell is so much part of, of uh, outer body and hypnotic regression 
and even ghostly spirit apparitions. You know, you smell. I, I swear, I've smelled Robin's perfume so strong at sometimes that mm-hmm. you know she's she's they're behind the glass somewhere. Well, oh, Raymond Land had that experience, same experience in the Young Invited. Remember? Yes. The smell of mimosa. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the good ghost and uh, the, the the vengeful ghost. So let's go on. And, uh, by the way, Robert. Robert, yeah. sorry, I can, I can interrupt, folks. Um, what Robert talks about is really real, and we have a real-world example. I won't get into it deeply, but basically, Robert, last week, tapped into my son, my youngest son's dream, and in a separate email, highlighted everything that my son told me about this nightmare he was having. This is real stuff, folks. It's yeah. real. Yeah. Well, Andrew and his family are very dear to me. We are family, and uh, Selen is... is uh, a, a very dear person in my life. So I was told that he was having trouble and uh, he went to a, a, a camp of some sort, Native American camp. Uh, they call You call them what? First Nations. And he, the second day he got sick and he wasn't feeling well. And Andrew and I talked and he said, you know, well, you know, he's been away, you know, been away from home a lot. Maybe just needs to stay away. And he said to me, would you try to send them some good dreams and so he can get through this thing? So I went to sleep and I said, yeah, you know what? I love Stellan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send him some good dreams and I'm going to concentrate on him tonight. And what happened was I had the most dreadful night imaginable. I had, I had very little sleep because I found myself completely isolated in a huge, huge room that had several beds that looked like bunks and nobody around and totally isolated and a sense of strangeness and possibly menace, you know, mm. roaming the atmosphere, totally alone. Remember, there are two sides to revelation. Yeah. The good side and the guys that don't want us ever to remember. That's right. You're on the other side of midnight. We'll be back for our last half hour. Ron will take standard stage and will take us to some extraordinary things on Mars because, like my grandmother used to say about the quilt, if you pull on the right thread, the whole damn thing is going to fall apart. That's what's going to happen with the cover-up. Fasten your seatbelts. The future has arrived. Theothersideofmidnight.com 
Sunday night, Monday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight. We've been to the moon. Every time NASA mentions Artemis, inevitably, and originally I thought it was kind of like because, you know, Donald Trump, because he's the guy that kind of accelerated us getting back to the moon by 2024. It's probably going to be 2025 now. But he kind of complained at one point to uh, Bridenstein, who he'd appointed as the NASA administrator, Hey, you guys keep talking about the moon, but you never talk about Mars. So from then on, even through the change of administration, every time NASA mentions Artemis, every time it talks about return to the moon, this time to stay, and the Artemis generation, they bring up Mars. So they are cementing in the public mind, moon, Mars, moon, Mars. And when there are discovered to be E.T. ruins on the moon, by metonymy, they will also extend in the public mind to Mars. So, Ron, that is your cue. Take it away. Am I beautiful? Ooh, Someone's here. muted, but you're not. <laughs> oh, well, Richard, I, I wanted to finish the two pictures that I have left over. They are important. There's okay. one good black and white photo that came from uh, the Orion uh, camera. Oh, and these horrible see, pictures. See, They're terrible. I, I downloaded it, and I isolated one section, which has some very interesting rectangular oh there's sunny stuff all over the place but they're horrible pictures i I isolated it i I made it smaller and i put letters so that you can all explore it and the last thing i want to say was with regard to uh stalin's experience when i had that remote viewing experience of being in his place i wrote to andrew right away that he should go and pick him up and bring him home and he wrote back we're already on our way because he's not feeling well so uh, that's it, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing Ron. Ron, that's your cue. Oh, you sure? Nobody else? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I I think you go through this, including playing that uh, Carpenter song, just to get me grumpy. Uh, I'm at my best when I'm grumpy, but um, I should say you wouldn't like me when I'm grumpy. Okay, I'm trying to figure out which important... 
which pictures are the important couple that I can do. But uh, people can just look at uh, my offerings there. And number seven, I was sure to remember that, should be, should have a sort of a sawtooth uh, appearance at the, in the top panel. Yeah, that thing shot. in the middle of the crater. It's not really yeah, a crater. It's a, no, 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 no. No, it's three, all three panels are the sa- from the same image. It's one of the Artemis images. And at the top, as part of the um, uh, manifestations of enhancement, the, um, the alphas, as the Adobe people call them, and the saturation channel is a really good place to see if somebody had messed with the image. This is, you know, before I got it. And so what you see there, that, that ragged, sawtooth, very artificial-looking stuff in the sky. You mean number four? Is it number four it's now? Number four, yes, number four. I absolutely checked it. I put it in as number one. I checked it with Keith this afternoon, and it was it, number four. And it's number four. Or number seven. Now he couldn't find it. It's number but four. But it's there. As long as it's there. That one with the big black hair, jagged area <laughs> at the top. I got to do this or I'll never get through it. The uh, That is the result of some NASA tech masking out the sky so that you couldn't see anything but right on the edge of the limb. Yeah, they're cutting and out think, the dome, obviously. Right, and but the the odd one about this one was, do you notice the blurriness on the left side of the teeth? I mean, the, the teeth on the to the left side there. Yep. It's, yep. Uh, yeah, they, they, it was like second thought. I don't know what order the messing was done. I mean, it's not unusual or unorthodox for astronomers to mat out the sky around something they've taken a picture of because they got a whole bunch of big blank space uh, that doesn't really show anything around their little meteorite or whatever they're taking a picture of and so that's that's often done just to, to you know except you can see the detail they left sticking up between the jaggies uh, exactly. and behind them it's like they did a really 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 crappy rush job or the good guys performed to the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law now, i've never seen one that was messy like this I've seen various, uh, obviously various hands at work, like the like the hand of a telegrapher. You can tell if it's a different graphics person working. I on think it. you can see the top of the dome there sticking up between the the jaggies. That could be what that is. Yeah, very much so. Well, it doesn't anyway. match. The, it doesn't match the jaggies, which are how they're obscuring. Yeah. And it doesn't. I think you're seeing what's left of the dome in this. See, this was a super close up with a super good camera. The nav cam. Why is it super good? Yeah, that, because the astronauts will depend on it with their literal lives if they lose communication with Houston, which they did got a twice here. Can I, during can this I, mission. Go ahead. Can I? Yeah, let me run through the rest of them. Give me something here. The uh, okay. There's two of the images. I have to do it this way because obviously somehow the numbers got scrambled. It wasn't Keith's fault. Uh, the uh, one says Apollo Orbital and the other says Lunar Orbital 2. Uh, the Lunar Orbital 2, that's just to show. I just thought for comparison's sake, you could see what kind of pictures they used to take. Lunar and Orbital 2 is in, number one. Apollo Orbital Combo is number two. Yeah, well, they're labeled, so it doesn't matter. But the, uh, yeah, on the Lunar Orbital one, you'll notice that's the entire film frame. They were taking pictures on film and sending them back. Uh, the uh, so I included that with the little um, you know the edges to it and so forth and that's a blow up of it and it's not great but you can see there's ruins there 
the other one, the Apollo orbital one, uh, with apologies to, I think it was Dave Serrata that was credited with this. Yes, you can get color out of a black and white image, and it's not phony. Uh, the, on the left is one. Uh, both images are, were taken from Apollo as it looped around the moon on different missions. They happen to go over the same spot, more or less. And I actually found that, realized that it was almost exactly the same spot accidentally when I was putting them together but because I did them at separate times. But the one on the left, that's colorized by me using not paint. It's just I brought it out from the black and white. So make it, it does add detail, make up your own mind. But uh, that's what those look like. And what then the freestanding one, uh, don't know how to describe it because I don't know which one it is, but it's an Artemis picture, obviously. And it's, um, if you look closely in those craters, uh, these have rather pronounced ring, white rings around them. It's almost like looking at a fried egg from a distance. Uh, and surprise, that white stuff is not all sticking up. You'll see that on some of the others where I brought out as much of it as I could. But it's flat. These are pieces of something that are super reflective, like so much else we've seen on Mars and uh, the Moon. And inside one of them is something that looks kind of like one of those um, – things you use to pull the cork out of a wine bottle because it's several blocks long. Uh, so it's a piece of the old machinery or something. Uh, and finally, in terms of those, there's the, uh, there's one from Apollo 15. That's uh, the uh, Mare Smithii uh, area that we dealt with before. Uh, but just that's, you know, that's a good picture taken by astronauts. And unlike what we got out of Artemis. On film, yeah. Good old film. Yeah, and the last, yeah, the last two color ones are just head scratchers. Uh, the uh, the one from Perseverance starts with a ZRF. It's uh, number eight. Yeah, is, uh, well, everybody's seen that. That was on day number four, saw number four for Perseverance. And um, those are all, you know, those are all from there. But the upper right there is with um, – a bit of time applied to it. I was able to get rid of all of the uh, phony shadow covering that end of it. And you can see why they were so interested. It's got all a whole bunch of sculptures there. And the other one is just a complete. Uh, oh, good. Now I have time for comments. Looks like Arches uh, Park. Huh? It's the Sorry. same people that made Arches Park. Oh, maybe, uh, maybe oh, not. You mean the moon art? You mean the moon art? No, 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 no. He's talking about Utah and what's it? Uh, oh, that's right. uh, Kodiak, Kodiak Butte. Yeah. And well, the, Kodiak uh, the, Temple the, the, was, we called it. Yeah, that's what NASA named it, Kodiak. So it's, uh, which um, means bear. So it's it's uh, in Inuit. Uh, anyway, the remaining one, the bluish one, the uh, oblong one. Number nine, is, it says Spirit. Is, yeah, is most of, yeah, that was from Spirit. That picture was done 20 years ago, and that's one of their triplets, I, which I always search out, which means that they, they didn't have colored cameras on Spirit or Opportunity, and so they had to take three shots. But since it wasn't rolling anywhere, it was through red, there, green, and blue filters. Good. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, there's several of them. I've showed one before and made people's, uh, people go, what the hell is that? Well, I don't know. 
but this is another one. It's exactly the same, except the color's better. You can see there's like a brass ring. It's like, it looks like a very earth-like plumbing part, a vent or a drain or something. This one, I, well, it has to be on a sort of a vertical surface. This is not the same one as the, uh, I was trying around before. And that cluster of little holes up to above it to the left, uh, we, I think we were supposed to think that this was the result of some piece of hardware on Spirit, like a brush or a drill. The rat. It's not. Huh? The rat. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not. It's, it's, right. It's, the, the size is wrong. It doesn't match the other one. It can't possibly be the same thing. Plus, you'll if you look at it, you'll see that what it punched, uh, what it's a hole through. I won't say punched through because it looks like it was punched out by a hole punch, not drilled out. Uh, it, there's something behind there, and it's a relatively thin, apparently translucent uh, surface there that uh, we're thinking of, you know, looks like a glacier or a rock because you'll see wires sticking out and things. This is, it's a mystery item that they looked at, and both Spirit and Opportunity took pictures of these things, and they were in very different parts of the planet, but I guess they uh, only shared a few of them. Um, so that's, you know, that, and the rest of the pictures just, you know, you can, if you puzzle it out, you can see that, yes, there's buildings there if anybody still thinks that the moon doesn't have structures on it. Um, the um, ah, yeah. See that. Ron, what do you think created the soot around the lower circle? Uh, I think that when the uh, uh, that there was under some pressure. Yeah. Yeah, that's very. You're right. That's very similar to what shows on the other one. Uh, the um, uh, but it's uh, yeah. I, I think they. I think that they. I think that. You see that little scratch in the very middle of the red part in between yes. inside the ring, and by the way, I think it's blurry because they were kind of leaning over. That was as close as they could get with that camera, because you see on the inner surface of the brass part, there's a red reflection, which would be the sun, seen from Mars. Uh, but you see that little scratch in there. I think, yeah, I, I think it vented. And they they don't necessarily post stuff in order. Oh, this does have the stuff at the bottom. And you can see there's, yeah, there's some kind of business that was just starting to look interesting right at the bottom edge. But right. is, that's, that's, that is the edge. Well, of the if you that's encounter crazy. a mechanical container on Mars and you punch through it with a drill, the stuff inside of its pressurizer is going to get escape. And the atmosphere is at least a tenth of the Earth, maybe smaller. So you're going to get, you know, spray. Yeah, yeah. They just discovered some uh, brass containers in Syria that are four thousand years old, and the liquid is still well, not exactly fresh, but there's uh, inside of them because don't they, drink that. Uh, oh, sorry, too bad. Yeah, I Oh no, people have eaten mastodon steaks and all kinds of things okay, on our Ron, crazy. Yes, we need to talk about the mission. Okay, I want to commission. The, uh, all our audience tonight, every person listening anywhere in the world, you can all participate because there are translators. You don't need to know English. I want you to go to items three and four in my section, which are the backgrounds of the eight civilians that that Musk and company have picked to be part of the first civilian non-government crew orbiting the moon 
maybe as early as next year, maybe a year from this December, depending upon how the test uh, with the Starship go. I want you to note their names, read their backgrounds. That's why I gave you two sources, two different news agencies. They both overlap. You're then going to go and find these people on social media. You're going to track them down, Twitter, Facebook, any of the other social media, the new ones that are coming up in the face of whatever Musk is doing with Twitter. You're, You're then talking about the group that Musk The group that's going to the moon. Eight yeah, people. Yeah, You're yeah, going including the including the girl that doesn't like fracking. I'm just no, there's pictures. Yeah. Yeah, Those but there's people. also names okay. and bios and you can track them down through social media because they're suddenly superstars. They're going to sure. be very oh, no visible. Argument. I just wanted to make sure. Yeah, no well, argument. Who else would I be talking about? The janitors? Uh, the SpaceX? Well, no. Be- no, Bezos has his own group of... Uh, this is Musk. This people. is SpaceX. This is yeah. the, the uh, you know, uh, moon mission. You know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you're going to track these people down and start sending them email and commenting on their posts if they have Facebook pages or they have Twitter accounts, including Musk. And you're going to point them all to all of the lunar shows that the other side of midnight has done. If you're really enterprising, like that, enterprising, you will send them links to those shows. You will inveigle them to listen. You will send them images from those shows. You will tell them each they can become the chief architects of the future of humankind. And all they have to do is keep their eyes open, their cameras ready, and their microphones hot to describe what they see as they curve around the moon and see what human eyes have not seen since the Apollo program and what uncensored, uncensored human eyes have not seen for maybe several tens of thousands of years. That is your mission, should you choose to accept it. The floor is open. Okay, good, uh, good suggestion. Uh, a, a thought comes to mind. Uh, people have private individuals have gone up into space before. Um, you know, the yeah, Dennis Tito spent twenty million dollars to spend two weeks in the Russian segment of the International Space Station, or maybe it was Mir. He didn't see anything because mm-hmm. he was in low Earth orbit. Yeah, uh, did he say anything about it afterward? He was in low Earth orbit. The Earth is gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Period. So he was he he was on the threshold of anywhere is uh Heinlein Yeah, but reference. you have to physically but, uh, get there. Uh, going to the moon, like Musk is gonna do by taking eight civilians, enough. artists, with cameras and all kinds of social media, they will be sending extraordinary pictures compared to NASA's crap. You know, when you and Andrew were discussing the astronaut uh painting, uh it occurred to me Alan Bean uh, Alan Bean. Okay. Thank you. I just didn't, I know the names of most of them. I just didn't want to get the wrong one there uh, with that. But who, you know what else causes colored lights to be uh, visible on the ground? Uh, remember the way that the, um, 
some of the early Perseverance pictures had those uh, refractive lights, uh, mostly green, but some red and blue, uh, on the ground. And we figured out it had to be from glass. Yeah, it was the sun shining through the glass that's remaining in the dome yes. over Jezero, uh, imaging yes. on the ground just like, like a lens. Right. Now then, what happens in a, in a classic church? They have stained glass windows. Why do they have stained glass windows? Because they cast all these lovely colors on the floor. Mm-hmm. They sort of bathe everybody in them. And I think that memory of a church is the link that allowed uh, at least some of the astronauts to remember the colors they saw. Because it is fleeting. You know, you're not looking up and seeing something that looks like carnival glass at all times. Mm. You know, it, it's, Andrew, it's you're the art therapist. What do you think? Well, the only thing I'd say, I mean, I don't disagree with Ron, but your, was it Madrid? Yeah, the Crystal uh, Palace in Madrid. Yeah, were those, was that color glass or was that just the No, refract- it's transparent, refractive, no. prismatic edges and geometry doing all that extraordinary color work, including, which is crucial to the understanding the moon, the pastels. Because what I didn't mm-hmm. put up was a slide showing when you take a prism, and you take two prisms and you cross the streams, Ghostbusters here, you cross the, the, the actual, the, the prismatic colors from the prisms. Where you cross them, you get all the colors of the glass on the moon. And you see that in that enlarged inset that I did in that one uh, comparison in, in my section tonight. I mean, if I, if I had to speculate, um, I would say that what you're saying, Richard, they knew the, the, the secondary effects that it would cast these these colors. Of course. Probably probably within their world and just would change depending on what was the time of the day. Or, See, well, in previous time. shows, uh, what I've done is I've taken that picture of the so-called orange soil that Robert posted. Yeah. And I basically just, you know, resaturated the color of the rest of the frame. And it's incredibly colorful because of the light shining at low sun angle through the glass dome over Taurus Littrow. In fact, that's the interesting thing about that frame. The orange glass, which is bubbling up from deep under under the moon, under layers, like Robert said, that's kind of normal geology. The really amazing part is that that image is so colorful, taken on very slow color film, when you put the color back in that's there that NASA suppressed in the lab in Houston under the aegis of a guy named Dick Underwood, who was the chief photographer for the Apollo program at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston. You know, definitely somebody's doing that job now because they just drained all the color out of those Artemis yeah. pictures. Well, and it's can... funny. Go ahead. Well, you should yeah. that you should mention pastels. Um, one of I didn't include it today, but I've shown it. Well, back in 2015, I can't believe I've been doing this this long. Anyway, um, <laughs> see how time flies when you're having fun, making history. I know. <laughs> well, there's a, a one uh, painting he did, and he calls it Monet's Moon, and it's gorgeous. It's just it looks like these yours and Robert's images of the real color or the Andrew was Andrew McCarthy, uh, the, the fellow that you guys had. And it looks just like that. It looks like this 
as if Monet <laughs> had transported himself out into space and was like painting watercolor. Well, you understand color. that those colors are incredibly subtle. Those are enhancements out of the yeah. background, but but they're there. They're real color. Yeah. They're real yeah. mineral colors. The colors on the far side and that incredible video sequence that John did as they were crossing Prosolarum in the spacecraft, you know, before they go behind the curve that you can clearly see is the near side because of the, the, the mare, the smooth mare. That color is the glass still remaining over the near side. And because there's so much of it, if you look through enough hundreds of miles of even incredibly eroded glass, you'll see enough to see that it's there's something there. And that's what we're seeing on the near side. Hmm. And if I can throw something in there. By all means. Um, it's Arches Park again because I'm studying how they're dividing up the frequencies of visible light for different purposes, among them healing, um, spiritual, you know, heightened consciousness, these kind of things. And um, it just reminds me of what we're, we're seeing on the moon. Well, well look that at remind you. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just, I, I did have a thought on those bridges, those uh, interrupted bridges seen, because uh, they were even referenced by George, George Leonard, the one that wrote that yes. somebody else is on the moon yeah. book. And uh, parenthetically about that, by the way, I've owned copies of both the hardbound one and the much more easily available uh, paperback edition that came out later. Mm-hmm. And guess what? The pictures is a better quality in the paperback than they are in the original one. Yeah, they really must uh, must them up. Even though most people can't see much in most of them, it's they're frustrating as hell. But I, uh, he had an effect on me, as Richard does. Uh, we talked about it many, many years ago. Uh, but the, uh, yeah, those uh, those bridges, they're like uh, a tuning fork. Do you mean like the There's stuff in the center of, of the Gobekli Tepe site? Yeah, that one's not coming to mind. But yeah, they were there. There they were there for some mechanical purpose like that. Uh, there's only three things they could be, as far as I could see. Either because I do, I don't think that they just stopped working on them at a certain point. You know, because the senators' uh, committee uh, funds ran out or something. <laughs> they um, yeah, either they were vertical and therefore part of the dome structure, and they just fell over. And the stuff is so – the material is so sturdy, so, uh, the ribbing anyway, you know, any framing that it has, that uh, it's still there. Uh, or they were uh, launching tracks, you know, the other way to launch a rocket where you magnetically uh, propel it along a track that's pointed vaguely up upwards. Uh, uh, or they were some sort of resonant. Yeah, uh, we have 30 tool. seconds to be run out of runway. Well, that's a, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and launch into orbit. Let's hope. Yeah. Hey, Richard. Yeah. Richard, really yeah. quick. Georgia Lambert sent something. I'm going to read the title: Inadvertent nanotechnology purified air in medieval churches. I'm going to read you one sentence. Put more simply, the gold used to decorate medieval era stained glass windows purifies the air when sunlight shines. Through the windows. Oh, what Very a marvelous nice. idea. Good one, Georgia. Hey, guys, we're at the end of the show. 
I want to thank all my guests to Numerous Dimension. Go to the website and you'll see all their names and all their contributions. And Kimthea was here in spirit. She was actually here physically. But I don't think she, um, I think she's still thinking about what we're seeing on the moon. Next weekend, I have no idea what we're doing. How's that for an admission? But we'll do something. So until then, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everybody. And go Artemis! Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.